0: warning tongue and geek contains heavy spoilers if you haven't read watched or played the content being reviewed this episode know that we will definitely spoil major plot points also this show isn't for kids we use words like f-, d-, and f-, and it would take too much time and effort to edit them all out please don't tell our moms listeners, and welcome to Tongue in Geek, where two more white guys on the internet share their unsolicited opinions on all things geeky. I'm Isaac. I'm Tyler. And today we're doing a mega review of the Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy, the MCU sci-fi films directed by James Gunn. Tyler, would you like to give us some background on these films? You know, I, I tried
1: to figure out what would be interesting background, and it all just kind of seem like boring trivia ish stuff, mm-hmm. but I guess it's fun to give out that kind of stuff for people who might not be in the know. The This team here that has been popularized by this trilogy in the MCU is actually the second iteration of the team mm-hmm. in the comics that uh, was formed during the Annihilation Conquest event in Marvel Comics. So, that's how the popular, famous version of the Guardians of the Galaxy was formed. The original team had Yondu on it, actually. Yep. Completely different character in the
0: comics as he oh,
1: is in the movie. Hell yeah. Mulatto absolutely. I remember as I is.
0: actually had one of those old black and white omnibuses of the Defender comics, and they had a meetup with the Guardians of the Galaxy in one of their runs, and it was like Yondu. All of the Guardians of the Galaxy in the original team were like from planets in our solar system. So, like, there was this really big guy who was from Jupiter because of, like, the way the gravity, like, infected them. Basically, their bodies were affected by the planets that they grew up on. And so, I think there's a guy from Pluto that was all made of ice or crystal or something. And there's just Yondu, who was just, like, a blue alien dude with this Little weird fin, on his, head. fin <laughs> on his head. Yeah, for some reason.
1: Yeah, the, most of the original team actually has cameos in Volume 2. Mm-hmm. Sylvester Stallone. He plays uh, Starhawk. He's like... I can't remember if he was the leader or the other guy was... It doesn't matter. Anyway, we're talking about the movies. Um, <laughs> so, yes, the, the the version of the team that is popular now is the second iteration and there's a whole new one, uh, a whole different one before. I guess I just like to tell everybody that James Gunn wrote the first two live-action Scooby-Doo movies. I just okay <laughs> I find that in, I find that endlessly entertaining. <laughs> okay, because when those when those came out, they were kind of shit on. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've they've kind of been reevaluated and appreciated more as they've aged. Mm-hmm. When you go back to watch them, you can you can totally kind of see his voice in them. So, no James Gunn retrospective is complete without a viewing of
0: <laughs> <It's crazy>. movies. <laughs> I love the second one; it's nuts. It's, they're just weird, weird takes on the Scooby franchise. Yeah, James Gunn is an interesting director. We've talked about his work before when we did our um, Suicide Squad episode. He's really good at taking obscure or B-list characters and just completely reimagining them into something else. Yes. And you can tell he fucking loves comic books because mm-hmm.
1: he got his start in... I have I've told you about it before. Um Troma Entertainment. Troma is as the founder Lloyd Kaufman loves to say, the oldest independent uh, movie studio in America. They specialize in vulgar, offensive schlock and it's incredible. Um <laughs> James Gunn got to start there. Um he co-wrote one of the more acclaimed movies that they have, um Tromeo and Juliet which, yes, it's what it sounds like. <laughs> it's just a <laughs> gross-out version of Romeo and Juliet that takes place in Troma, New Jersey. And uh, he was put on the map with his horror film Slither, which is just an amazing homage to all kinds of different uh, horror films of the past, and that's where his uh, sense of humor really comes into play, his, his subversive sense of humor. A movie that doesn't get talked about from him is Super, which is a superhero movie, but his own original idea it's kind of like Kick-Ass, but if Kickass was even darker and more deranged. Mm-hmm. It's just about two very broken, very dysfunctional, fucked up people who decide to become superheroes.
0: Isn't that all superheroes? <laughs> Pretty much, but this one like <laughs> this one takes it to like the
1: you know the, the dark end of the road of this, if somebody decided to actually do this. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then, you know, after
0: that, you know, he got scooped up by Marvel, and that's all she wrote. Yeah, I remember when I saw the trailer for the first Guardians of the Galaxy, It was we were fresh off the heels of the Avengers. Marvel was, like, the new big thing that everyone was talking about. They're like, holy crap, can't believe they're doing this big, like, shared universe thing in the movies. That's crazy. It was brand new. It was fresh. It was hot. And I saw Guardians, and I was like... Okay, this is going to be the making or breaking point of the MCU yes, because you're watching in the trailer. I remember like the go to shot that everyone talked about was when like Rocket and Groot are like in the prison. Rock, They're both screaming, <laughs> Rocket's firing his gun. And I remember looking at that and being like, this will be the deciding factor because either people will be able to get on board with a talking raccoon and a talking tree man in space or. Or they won't, <laughs> and like that's that's going to decide if general audiences are on board with Marvel movies. And obviously, the consensus is, yeah, we're all in on Marvel movies and have been for the last decade.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I think it is worth going into just how different the MCU sort of mindset was back then, mm-hmm. because even though it had been successful. Um, up until that point, there was still a lot of speculation on, oh, when is the bubble going to burst? When are they going to have a a massive flop? And a lot of people were so sure that this movie, Guardians of the Galaxy, would be their first dud. They're mm. like, they're already running out of ideas. Who the hell are these characters? Nobody's ever heard of them. Not even comic book readers know who these people are. <laughs> like, and yeah, there was a lot of just a lot of speculation, you know, riding on it and like people were predicting it would sink. Mm-hmm. And I remember the trailer hitting. I'm like, this looks fucking good. <laughs> like it's <"This looks> really <laughs> funny and unique. Yeah. The MCU was still not like the absolute omnipresent juggernaut that it is now. Mm-hmm. So after the Avengers, the guardians of the galaxy was the proving ground and it came out. It was a huge surprise. Like, not, like, just in context of being a comic book movie or even an MCU movie, but just as, like, a blockbuster movie. Mm-hmm. It kind of just took the world by storm and surprised the shit out of everyone. Yeah. Because- and it's it's a, fan, it's a fan favorite to this day, and that's not very the lead. Uh, how do you want to get into it?
0: Yeah, let's jump into that first movie because there's a lot that this first movie does in retrospect that sort of follows the Marvel formula that was being established at the time. I think this is the one that's most in line with the MCU style of storytelling. But it also took a lot of risks for the time period in the way that it went about it. Because movie starts off. Kid watching his mother die of cancer. Like, that's the opening scene of this film. <laughs> yep. And you're you're hey. sitting there in the theater for the first, like, five minutes like, I thought I bought a ticket to something with, like, a raccoon and a tree in it. What the hell's going on? <laughs> Uh, so Why am I already feeling this? It's, it's com- it's a completely throws you off from your expectations of that this is going to be a wacky, goofy space adventure. Because it is that. But it also immediately sets the stage of, like, yes, it's a wacky, goofy space adventure. But we've got something. We've got a deeper, more tragic story to tell beneath all the antics.
1: Oh, man. Um I don't know how to because there's God, there's there's so much. See, this is why I wish we did this professionally because mm-hmm. if we got paid to do this, I'd actually take the time to like.
0: Oh, so <laughs> write you're out talking you're points. just saying <laughs> that you're entirely motivated by money? Yes. <laughs> okay. Rise and grind, baby. Mm-hmm. You see, I do make take the time to make out talking points, and I'm not paid a fucking dime, and I do the yes, editing on this too. Yeah. You I, can't lazy quite bitch. Use, I can't
1: quite use the excuse of I'm a working man with a mm-hmm. family because you're mm-hmm. also a
0: working man with a family. <laughs> and I also put in the time to edit this shit, you lazy bitch. Let me let me move a little bit. We both sort of agreed there was a lot of this that we saw like the old-school MCU storytelling in. It was still getting established at this point, but there are a lot of elements in this first movie. Um, At its core, this film is a MacGuffin quest where the heroes have to save the world, or in this case, the galaxy, from a pretty generic crazy bad guy. Um, It's more polished, I think, in its overall storytelling than the other two films. There's less glaring issues, but it lacks the highs that the others have.
1: Hmm, interesting because I I had rewatched volume 2 more recently than I had volume 1. Mhm. Um it's not called volume 1, it's just called Guardians of the Galaxy, but for brevity I'll just call it volume 1.
0: Yeah, they like retroactively call it that. Upon the recent rewatch,
1: um the strict adherence to like that three-act fetch quest sort of structure really became apparent. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gets into a in the way of the movie a little bit and i think um ronin really kind of takes it down a
0: peg oh absolutely Ronan is there to set up thanos as a villain let's get into ronin as a villain Ronan the Accuser is a Cree fanatic, one of these alien races, and we're told that he hates this entire species called the Nova, or it's not even like a species, it's like a space empire. Hates them for some ongoing war that we never actually get to see. Uh, from the comics, yeah. it was like the Cree versus the Scroll. I guess they wanted to keep the Scroll for later on so well, the Zandarians
1: is who yeah. he hates and wants to like eradicate
0: right um but he's he's entire arc is just trying to basically eradicate an entire species which you know you can have genocidal maniac but it's you got to do it in a way that's fun and interesting and ronan is just clear-cut i'm a nutcase i want to kill everybody of this race and that's it there's nothing to him what yeah he's, it's what he's Go ahead. there for is to establish the threat of Thanos, because A, his two sidekicks, Gamora and Nebula, are Thanos' adoptive daughters, and B, we get multiple scenes of him bargaining with Thanos for more power.
1: Back when this came out, and I loved it, so I, I still love it, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. um, this isn't me. I don't think it's either of us trashing the movie at all. No. <laughs> but um I do think it's actually the most openly flawed upon retrospect. We all know MC, the MCU has a villain problem. Not always, but it's been, like, the main ongoing complaint that people have had with it from its inception. And, like, Ronan is, like, bottom five, maybe, mm-hmm. villains, in my opinion. Because His his design, great. Uh, the actor, Lee Pace, he's a good actor, but he's not very good in this. He, he doesn't have... He's not very threatening. He just comes off like a petulant little idiot he's got no presence he's just he's got no presence if you're you're gonna create a villain Mm -hmm. that is a genocidal lunatic and motivated by like fanaticism religious fanaticism you gotta do something with that yeah the movie does it's it's the most vaguest of vague exposition and motivation and that's
0: it. We don't even know and anything about like Cree culture or the Cree religion at this point. Like we never get anything about like his personal beliefs. Like when you do like one of these religious fanatics or these, you know, political zealots, you've got to go real deep into the sort of like ideology that has defined their way of life. And they don't do anything with them aside from oh, he kills people he doesn't like.
1: Yeah, it's it's just the one real negative sticking point in this movie because everything around it is uh, is great. Mm-hmm. If the movie wasn't so fun and charming and emotional around Ronan, it'd be a bigger deal than it is but still as it stands, he is pretty much
0: a Big detriment. And if there weren't other, <laughs> th- if there weren't other threats, because we also do have Nebula as his sidekick, and Nebula is a far more interesting antagonist due to her connection with Gamora, um, plus the Ravagers who are hunting down Quill and their connection with Quill. Basically, the problem with him, aside from the fact that he's just boring, is that there's no real connection between Ronan and the cast, aside from Drax. Drax is the only yeah. one he's got a connection to, but Drax is like not the primary focus of this film
1: yeah and you can tell um, once kind of the rose tinted glasses of it being such a refreshing and fun movie wears off you can kind of see the cracks in the foundation mm-hmm. but as a foundation it still works really really well because James Gunn puts in the time to create this group of characters that feel all very defined in like two hours of runtime, mm-hmm. and he does that while setting up a lot for the Infinity Saga moving forward in a way that doesn't really detract from the overall movie itself. Yeah.
0: Um, This one definitely... Yeah. This one definitely feels like it was setting up for the sequels and for the interactions between the fellow... or the rest of the MCU more than the others do. The others feel more like their own standalone stories. Yeah, you you can... tell that he got
1: some notes like okay like we're going to let you do what you want you know with the with the tone you know and the characters but you got to put this infinity stone stuff in there yeah <laughs> and you we're going to have a Thanos cameo in there too yeah but um god the characters there's i remember <laughs> that that first not the not the prologue scene which is gut-wrenching, like, immediately. I don't know how he does it, man. I'm I'm sidetracking. I'm sorry. I don't know how... This is going to be a theme. I don't know how he can manage to lay out such heavy and obvious emotional scenes
0: and have them not feel cloying and have them feel so sincere (laughs) love james gunn but let's give credit where credit's due the cast in this do a phenomenal job of acting out these characters as well oh yeah chris pratt who had only really been in like parks and rec up until this point we knew he could play a goofy funny man but like the emotional depth of star lord's character this sort of like Smooth-talking man-child, just sort of schmoozing his way throughout the galaxy, learning to become a mature adult who takes responsibility for himself and others. Like uh, he, he, perf- his performance in that is so endearing because we get this funny goofball that we already know that chris pratt can play but underneath that funny goofball is someone who is genuinely traumatized by the actions of their childhood and clinging to the brightness of their childhood to cope with it
1: yeah and um he's you just described him as a man child and he is but that man childishness is is rooted in a traumatic event that happened to him when he was like 10 years old yeah so he can't grow up like, his, he, his, his development has been arrested in, like, the most almost literal way because Yondu comes and takes him pretty mm-hmm. much as he's running out of the hospital after his mother just died right in front of him. So, he has that love for his mother and also that trauma for his mother and they're intertwined because he models everything about himself from his childhood that he shared with his mom. Mm-hmm. But it's that same childhood that's holding him back from making real connections with people from maturing as a person and Chris Pratt kind of blew up after this movie and now he's now the pendulum has swung in an opposite direction where people kind of hate him now but it's easy to forget how good he is in this role like he he plays the the lovable roguish Goofball, like, really well. And it's never to the point where his goofiness undermines his competence. Like, because when shit hits the fan, like, Star Lord knows what he's doing. Yeah. And he's going to fuck you up. Yeah. Which I, is always fun to see in a character. There
0: there's a balancing act that they do with him where, yes, there's a lot of scenes where he gets his butt kicked, but he's also a competent fighter. Um and it, it, it doesn't he never feels hyper competent like some of the characters might, and he never feels incompetent. He feels like a guy who spent his entire life around space pirates, like he did, and had to learn how to fight and take care of himself. Not, he's not like the best fighter on the team or the most competent, you know, pilot or anything, but he, the skills that he has, he's good at them.
1: So after that prologue scene, um, we get into the actual opening scene of the movie proper, where this helmeted masked figure, who we assume is probably going to be the kid grew up, He's landed on an alien planet and it's like moody and mysterious and he's entering a temple. The camera tracks down and he hits play on his Walkman. You know, he puts his headphones on and then that song comes on as he's dancing and then the title card, Guardians of the Galaxy, hits mm-hmm. the screen. And when I tell you that like the, I felt the entire mood of the audience in the theater like vibe... Like, I I knew this was going to be Something special Because that that moment is so disarming Mm -hmm. And it works so well (laughs)
0: Like... I think what it works so well with is that it works so well in tandem with the prologue scene because within like the first five minutes of this film we know everything we need to know about Peter Quill as a character we see the trauma of his childhood the moment he's taken from Earth and then we see him grown up and him just sort of dancing around on this alien world not taking his mission seriously and we know exactly what we're getting into this is a man who is like you said interested to develop development living out his childhood fantasies of these big suave action heroes instead of having actually learned how to grow up and deal with his mature problems but he's become so like he's got all this technology and skill that he doesn't have to grow up he's found all these ways of coping and getting around the fact that he needs to actually be more mature and take things seriously and he uses
1: an alien rat as a microphone,
0: which <laughs> is also amazing.
1: <laughs> he's obviously the main character, pretty probably pretty pretty much of the trilogy. But James Gunn says it's actually secretly Rocket. And by the um, third one, you can tell. <laughs> and by the third one, you can tell. But Quill is a really good anchor for building the team around. Mm-hmm. He's he's like the perfect everyman in that you can project yourself onto him. And he's the easiest to relate to at first. But you can tell he has that kind of demeanor about him as a character where despite the fact that he doesn't really want to get close to people, you can tell that's kind of always been like a yearning of him, mm-hmm. of his. And it just takes this, this this circumstance that he's found himself in to allow himself to open up to other people and for people to endear himself to him. Because Gamora and Rocket and Groot <clears throat> They're both on the fetch quest for the orb. It's the orb the whole time. I don't yeah. even remember what freaking power. What's is is it a power, the power stone? stone? Yeah. Okay. They're both on. Each team is on separate missions to to find the orb. Uh, Gamora for Ronan and Thanos, obviously. Rocket and Groot. Who hired them? I can't even remember.
0: Uh, they weren't hired was- by anybody. They were just looking for the bounty, the bounty. because yeah, Yondu bounty, put a bounty right. on
1: Quill's head. They get thrown into prison, and that's where they meet Drax, and this is where the first bonding—or yeah, I guess you can call it the first bonding of the of the team—is cemented. What character do you want to you want to go to next? Let's, who's the, who's the
0: Let's save Rocket because I feel like yeah. he's he really is sort of integral to the movies going forward. Let's talk about Gamora because I, I've realized I don't really like Gamora as a character, especially here in this first film. It's um,
1: sad, because a lot of people seem to kind of consider her the
0: weak link. And she is, and for some very... Uh, Like, if you look back on it, there's some obvious problems, especially here in this first one. She's established as this, like, the ultimate daughter of Thanos. Her and Nebula have this alt thing going where they have this competition to see who can be, you know, the better warrior serving Thanos. But Gamora is basically betraying Thanos. Like, she hates him. Her and Nebula both do, as we learn more about them. But... Gamora hates him and is actually trying to save the galaxy from him. She's still supposed to be this super hyper-competent assassin, but she's actually got probably the strongest moral code of anybody on the team. The problem is Gamora almost never wins, especially especially in this first movie like that opening fight between her rocket and quill she beats up quill a little bit but he actually gets to put her down by using one of his little jet rocket boosters knocks her out she's the only one in that team to go unconscious before the nova core show up then in the prison scene she's kidnapped by these random guys And they like hold a knife to her throat. And it's like, this is the hyper-competent daughter of Thanos that's supposed to be one of the greatest assassins in the galaxy. And she gets kidnapped by two random schmucks in prison before Drax shows up and saves her as saying that I'm going to kill her myself. She's playing this sort of damsel in distress role in multiple scenes, despite supposedly being a hyper-competent assassin. There's really never a point where we really get to see her kick ass until towards the end we do get to see her fight with Nebula.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I never really—I always did kind of think that they that they nerfed her a little bit, but I didn't really think too hard on it. Yeah, in in the first movie, especially, um, you re- we really only see her just beat up some faceless goons, and and she basically, I guess, wins against Nebula in the first movie. <sighs> yeah, um, I like her well enough. I think. She has good chemistry with Chris Pratt and the rest of the cast, but yeah, she is kind of the weakest link in the team in the first movie. At least I do think she gets better in volume two and is probably one of the better parts of Infinity War, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. but it's not the strongest showing for her as a character in this first movie. She does enough to to round out the, the team and round out the group, but... You don't leave that movie thinking, "Oh man, Nip." uh oh, sorry, not Nebula. Gamora. She. She's the best. She kicks ass. She's. She's, she's <laughs> amazing.
0: She's the straight man in terms of the comedy, because she's the one who has a moral core. She's the one who's you know most competent on a logical level and social level. She's playing the straight man to everyone else, and it's. Just not as entertaining. And that's a shame because for the first movie, she's the only female member of the team. It kind of sucks that all these other characters are bouncing off with all these quips and whatnot. And she's just sort of there. You know, she really feels like she doesn't want to be there a lot. But she's just kind of putting up with it because for some reason she needs the rest of this team to get her mission complete.
1: Yeah, it's kind of hard because... With with a movie with this kind of tone and these kind of characters, you kind of need that straight man. Mm-hmm. You know her characteristics; they're informed by the character. You know um, she makes sense as a character. It's just it it it's too it fades into the background a little bit too much. Yeah, because everything else is like bigger and and louder and more funny or unique uh, than than she is. Um, I I do like that she is the moral compass, especially like in volume two. I kinda like how she wants to be like the the fixer, the problem solver. Um I think that's that that's a good way to characterize her considering her background with Thanos and, and Nebula.
0: Yeah, it's it's because sort of it's sort of weird in volume two, and we'll get to this when we get to it. She wants to be very supportive of Quill in his journey with his father, and I guess you can sort of see that as like a Maybe she's looking for catharsis due to her lack of a, you know, strong familial connection with her own adoptive father. But like it also kind of there were moments in the second one where I'm sitting there like, girl, why are you being so cool about all this? He's sitting there bitching in front of you about his dad when yours is like the most notorious murderer in the galaxy. (laughs) Well, not to jump
1: ahead, but um, I think it's justified. Uh, But we'll get there. Yeah, um, I wouldn't consider Gamora in, in volume one. A flaw necessarily, but she is kind of the, the the weaker of the character of the core team, for sure. Um, Zoe Saldana, though,
0: as Gamora, is oh, great, absolutely, I love Zoe Saldana. I think she does um, a phenomenal job with what she's given. I think just the writing and the way that like the film portrays her is isn't great, honestly. Her entire relationship with Quill in at least the first movie is dependent on those two actors and their ability to like that chemistry that they have. I think if those two actors didn't have that great chemistry, I wouldn't have bought into the relationship between Peter and Gamora at all.
1: Yeah, that's fair. And for for a romantic tension uh, to work for me, I don't I don't need like a bunch of like preamble and build up to it as long as the the actors click and i feel like it makes a surface level amount of sense for who they are as as characters in the movie mm-hmm. i love the i love the trope of like a hard ass softening up and like catching themselves you know mm-hmm. like not wanting to so that that whole scene of of her and peter kind of bonding over the music on his walkman and him kind of trying to get smooth with her and, and dance and stuff like that <laughs> And, and she's kind of She's kind of feeling it And then she catches herself And she's like I'm not going to be swayed By your pelvic sorcery
0: Yeah <laughs> That's a great line it, like. It's, <laughs> like there's a lot Of great lines That are both really funny But also really show The way that these characters James Gunn does a phenomenal job of using comedy to express character. And that's what all of these films do is that every joke comes from a place that lets you understand these characters more.
1: That's how you do it. Yes. That's how you get it done. You don't retcon a character. (laughs) <laughs> to suit your own sense of humor for the lulls. I'm looking at you, Taika Waititi. We're not. Ta- we're not going down that path. Um, no, <laughs> we've, we've already
0: done it. that whole thing.
1: <laughs> we've exhausted it. Um, all right, Gamora. On to Drax.
0: Sure. Let's talk about Drax. Drax is. Um, uh, Drax is he's he's interesting because in this first film, I forgot how much more subdued the performance for him here was. Mm -hmm. he's really more of the sort of like warrior who knows nothing but war trope sort of like Knuckles was in Sonic 2 he knows war and nothing else he's totally focused on being the best fighter he can be on you know fulfilling his honorable mission of avenging his wife and child and anything else is just you know nonsense to him he he doesn't care about anything else and he's So hyper literal, which they say is like a facet of his species. So most of the comedy in this doesn't really come from Drax being a goofball. It really comes more from Drax just taking everything everyone says literally. Really? Which is phenomenal. Which, which is, which is, which is fucking funny. It's a really good concept, and it makes for a lot of good jokes. I love the one where they're explaining that, and, like, Rocket's like, his entire species is completely ri- literal. It'll all just go over his head, and he's like, nothing goes over my nothing head. Over I my am head. too fast. I will catch <laughs> it. Yes. Like, that's a perfect concept, because it makes him a pseudo-straight man, where, like, he's not being funny. He's just taking things seriously when, and that makes it funnier.
1: Yeah. And this is, I I can't remember if this was Dave Bautista's first role in a film. Or I not. think it was. He knocks it out of the park. Absolutely. Um, and he, <laughs> he just cracks me up. I fucking love Jack so much. Um, yeah. <laughs> we said before how this is a foundational film and, when you look back compared to, like, the other two, you can you can see how it's very much foundational. But what makes it work, despite its flaws, is that the movie does just enough to to take it over the tropes and to take it over, you know, the very strict three-act MacGuffin chase adventure story. For a while, Drax is just, as you said, but then then when they're on Nowhere, he makes the decision in, like, a drunken stupor because he just had a fight with everybody because you got to have the... Misfits get together, don't get along dynamic. Mm -hmm. And he drunkenly sends out a signal to Ronan. It's a stupid thing to do, of course, duh. But because we know he's so focused on getting revenge for the death of his wife and child, that decision feels so, for the lack of a better word, human. And it feels like something he would do in the moment after everything that has happened. It just, it humanizes him so much and it humanizes the entire movie. In that moment, you really understand
0: who Drax is.
1: Yeah. Because that that is the moment where you understand him as a character. Up
0: until that point, he was probably the most outsider of the team. And like the team was still finding its footing of like, oh, we actually kind of care about each other and want to work together. But he was the most outsider because unlike the others, he didn't give a shit about anything except his singular motivation of revenge. Everybody else... Star-Lord and Rocket and Groot were in it for the money. Star-Lord was also kind of in it just to impress Gamora. Gamora was in it because she wanted to start a new life and to help people throughout the galaxy. Mm-hmm. But like Drax was solely focused on getting his revenge on Ronan. And at that scene in Nowhere, after his ass kicking from Ronan, he finally realizes that this single-minded drive I have to destruction, the way that... It's the same as Ronin's, and it's going to get people hurt and killed along the way. Bystanders are getting hurt. What I did was stupid. I need to go help these people that were helping me in my mission.
1: The ass-kicking and the mistake cracks his shell. Makes him understand that, like, he he can't do this because he's going to get up more people hurt, and Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to contribute to that. Him and Rocket find an understanding because, you know, they fought in the bar. I know we said we wanted to save rocket but i guess this is a a good segue you can tell from movie one that like rocket is is james gunn's baby Mm -hmm. um (laughs) because he's instantly just like a a great character that you latch on to he's he's your classic sarcastic smarmy douchey selfish jerk of a of a character but in in that way that that All great movies who have these kind of characters do, just you love him anyway Mm -hmm. because he's got that one or two uh, little bits of vulnerability that you see that allow you to peek into him and understand him as a person. First is obviously his partnership with Groot, the big tree man who everybody loves. He likes Groot, so therefore, you like Rocket more and him being funny also helps. Yeah. And the movie does such a good job of like visually hinting... At Rocket's past, without oh. exploring it, yeah. Um, when they're um, all arrested and getting processed, Peter's walking by, and Rockets—he's got like his clothes off, and you could see like the plugs and, and the circuits and the machinery that's like in his back, hinting that he—that something bad happened to him in the past. The first like real dig at emotion, where the where the movie starts to get me, is when him and Drax are fighting in the bar. And Rocket's got a gun pulled on tracks. Yeah. And he's like, he called me vermin. He thinks I'm this stupid thing. He does. And like the pain,
0: Mm -hmm. the real
1: pain in Rocket's
0: voice. Yeah. And he's he's like screaming about how I didn't ask to get. Torn apart and put back together, put back over, together and over, and over and over again,
1: over. like all you- all of his douchebaggery just melts away, and he's trying to hold on to it, but he's in tears, mm-hmm. and it's just it's all the facade, and it's, you know it's a facade. It's and-
0: so much thanks to the writing, of course, but also Bradley Cooper's voice performance is phenomenal for Rocket. He walks that tr- that line of being a gruff jackass who's just snarky and mean all the time, but also has this very tender, soft heart that he's not willing to expose to the world, yet we catch glimpses of it. Bradley Cooper does a phenomenal job of that, but also the visual effects teams for Rocket. like It's Mm -hmm. so hard to create an expressive animal face, and yet everything you see with Rocket, you can read the emotion on his face without it ever feeling uncanny valley like he's too human he still looks like a raccoon but like that's what's amazing he's just he's basically just a raccoon
1: yeah with a few like flourishes with the design he is basically just an upright raccoon
0: yeah and and yet there's so much emotion written across his face in every scene he never seems like neutral or even like inhuman with his responses like to make the comparison that fucking cgi lion king like all of the characters and that had no emotion on their faces because they were these hyper realistic animals. <laughs> and I, I still laugh my ass off at the scene where Mufasa died because you get baby Simba like pawing at Mufasa, like, Dad, wake up, Dad, wake up. And there's just this emotionless, expressionless face on the lion cub. And like, <laughs> that's not this at all. Like, they've managed to take the base form of a raccoon and Put the human expressions over it without losing the animalistic features,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it, I don't know how they did that.
1: <laughs> he's he's a great example of fantastic visual effects. We take visual effects in movies for granted because they're so ubiquitous now. Mm-hmm. So it, it's harder to like really appreciate them when they're done well. Yeah, but God, this movie's ten years old next year. Still phenomenal. Jesus Jesus Christ, ten years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Rocket still looks fantastic. Yeah, like and um, also credit to Sean Sean Gunn, uh, James Gunn's brother. He does all of the uh, motion performance for Rocket on set. The first movie is really good at meeting out, teasing out backstory um, to make you understand and into yourself to the characters without going overboard mm-hmm. or like de- derailing the narrative. It's, again, a real juggling act because the movies go, go, go pretty much for the entire time. But it's always finding ways to, to make you be like, oh, yeah, I like this guy. I like this girl. I like this character. I like this tree. Um, <laughs> when they get to nowhere, they're walking through it and like this little girl runs up to Groot and he just grows a flower out of his palm and picks it and gives her... It's little moments like that that just make these movies uh, a, a cut above... And even Groot, who's basically mute. All he says is, I am Groot, as we all know. Mm -hmm. Like, it would be easy for him to just come off as, like, the cute sidekick, you know, without much of a personality or character. Yeah. But they find a way to make Vin Vin Diesel as Groot, which is hilarious, because all he (laughs) really ever says is, I am Groot, Mm -hmm. in many different ways. Every inflection of, I am Groot, carries with it. A different emotion, a different tone where you understand what he's saying and what he's feeling. And also just through, you know, the animation of the character. You can tell he just kind of wants to, you know, hang out with Rocket. He wants to be friends with everybody. He wants to help out. You can always tell when he's like listening to what's going on, trying to understand. Um, I love the scene where they're trying to talk about how to escape the prison and Rock is like, we're going to need this, and we're going to need that. Uh, we're going to need a battery, mm-hmm. and this special battery that's like 12 foot up in, in, in the air. And <laughs> it's just a locked-off shot. Yeah. And Groot's listening, and they don't see him walk off <laughs> to the distance. And he just grows himself tall enough to pull the battery out. <laughs> and Rock's like, we're just going to have to improvise, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, even Groot. Feels like a mostly fully realized character in the movie in a,
0: in a movie with like what, like half
1: a dozen main characters. Yeah.
0: Groot is fascinating as a character because, like you said, he's a mostly mute character. He just has those words. I am Groot. He's a fantastic example of being able to project personality onto a sort of blank slate by using. Cues and visual elements that add so much more depth than, you know, should be there on the surface. Because on the surface, yeah, he's just a big walking plant guy and he's just sort of a mascot for the others. But the way they use his facial expressions, the way he uses his movement, the way that he interacts with the world around him it lets you project this personality onto him. In this first movie, you get the sense that he's this sort of weird, eccentric loner. Like he understands (laughs) the world going on around him, but, not enough to know like social cues or anything the first time we see him he's drinking out of like a fountain fountain. (laughs) (laughs) he's just got his mouth just agape as it's just spraying into it yeah you get the sense that like he and rocket paired off because they're both these weird loners that don't fit in anywhere else in the universe but even throughout that Even though, no, and in this movie, I think it's at its best because none of the rest of the team besides Rocket understand him. Like, the only person who can speak for Groot is Rocket. So, everything we know about Groot comes through Rocket, which we learn more of Rocket's own personality and him having to translate. But we get to see, instead of him being just this big, dumb, hulking tree that sort of wanders around and acts as Rocket's muscle, he's got this very real sort of I don't want to say Groot's personality in this first Are you trying to avoid innocence?
1: Are you trying to avoid I'm I'm sort of
0: trying to avoid innocence because it's not innocence. He's super hyper violent. He's so fucking violent. (laughs) Like Groot is so goddamn violent in all of the movies, in each iteration. What he is is this sort of caring figure in the way the other Others aren't. Uh, Gamora he may be, yeah. Gamora may be the moral core of this, but in the first movie, at least, Groot feels like the emotional core. He's the one who sort of like treats others with more kindness. He's the one who sort of defends people when you like they need it. Uh, like there's a point when they're having an argument towards the end over like whether or not they should help the Nova Corps and save Xandar. Where like Peter's like I've got like twelve percent of a plan, and Groot's like I'm Groot, and Rocket's like so what if it's better eleven than eleven percent? What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> like. Groot is a very protective and caring towards the people he's connected with in a way that like sort of inspires the others to be more protective and caring towards each other. And it manifests in the finale with Groot sacrificing himself to save the rest of the Guardians uh, because mm-hmm. like the ship comes crashing down in the perfect line, the Perfect line oh, for this God. character. So perfect. still hits so hard. We are Groot. are Groot. Uh As he swipes a tear
1: away from Rocket, who is being openly vulnerable in a in a human way for the first time in the Mm -hmm. movie when he realizes that he's going to lose his friend Groot. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, and not to take away from the Groot talk, but um, I wanted to make a final point about Drax and Rocket. Mm -hmm. After Ronan kicks his ass and leaves and we're in the aftermath of the the Nowhere fight, uh, Drax is uh, apologizing to Rocket and... He's like, I'm sorry, like, I let my pain of my dead family get in the way. And I was like, boo-hoo-hoo, my wife and kid are dead. Everybody's got dead people. Yeah. And, like, you think it's it's callous, and of course it's callous, but, like, Rock is trying to make a point, and I just want to say... Every moment with Rocket in this movie hits differently oh, after Volume 3.
0: Volume 3 recontextualizes Rocket's entire character arc because we all knew he was a gruff loner who, with a tragic past who doesn't want to connect with anybody. But once you see the depths of his trauma, you absolutely need to rewatch the other movies. Can You, you can see how what happened in his backstory affects every choice he makes.
1: Yeah, and... It's, it's not often that, like, telling a backstory later on in, a, in like, a sequel mm-hmm. or a continuation works so well, but we'll get to it. Anyway, back to Groot. When he starts forming his Groot ball around everybody to save them from the crashing ship, and he says, we are Groot. I was loving the movie. I, I can still remember seeing this for the first time in theaters almost a decade later. I do too. Like, <laughs> the biggest laugh I think I got was when he goes fucking
0: ape shit. Oh my god, yes! When he yes says that line of, of bad guys <laughs> <And he> starts thrashing <laughs> them <laughs> around while he's yelling, and then he just turns his ass around, looks at swords. Quill and Drax, and just gives them this big goofy grin. He's like, "I did good, oh. yeah."
1: <laughs> when. He's making his ball and he's doing the, the heroic sacrifice which I didn't expect because these movies hadn't really gone there yet at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm like this movie's amazing. Yeah. Like this is this is something special. This is really something special because you don't expect one of the characters to die in their first movie. In Guardians um, and of the you don't Galaxy. Expect it to be and you don't expect it to be like the cute tree man that you know everybody's gonna love instantly, mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel cheap. It feels earned because we understand so well who Groot is by the end mm-hmm. because of how well the performance is captured by the visual effects and I can't remember if he if he was mo capped, I'm sure he was and in the writing of the character
0: and it's it's such a genius turn too for the sequels because it establishes the changing of Groot into Baby Groot, which having this found family dynamic that's so central to these films having a character who basically is reset. I think the creators have f- effectively said the original Groot is dead and this isn't the same Groot from here on out. Yeah. It's basically a different, it's, character. it's basically a different character, but having this character who is so fundamentally tied to the one we lost in the first movie, go through this stage of rebirth and growth and all the other characters have to help mold them into a new person. Uh, In the way that, like, people raise a child. It's so phenomenal, the way that they use Groot throughout these films. The lore of the Power Stone
1: in this movie is you
0: can't touch it, you can't come into contact
1: with it, it's gonna fucking disintegrate you and destroy you. Naturally, to defeat Ronan, they all have to join hands, because Quill grabs it, and it's killing him. I love uh, another just... Emotional gut punch that you don't expect, and it just comes out of nowhere. where is take my hand, mm-hmm. and he flat and like he he seizes his mother on her, on on her deathbed, and it's like ooh, yeah, <laughs> good callback, good good full circle character moment here. He's he's no longer running away from death. He's no longer afraid of it. Um, he's going to do what he needs to do and take the hand. Yeah, and. It works. It feels earned. They, they join forces, these misfits, through their foibles. They manage to have enough of a connection to absorb the energy of the Power Stone and defeat Ronan. It's, it's always the little moments, like, after the action that make everything come together. Mm-hmm. Rocket sitting there just holding a twig, <laughs> just crying that he lost Groot. And Drax, And as we've established, these two have been the most antagonistic towards each other in the movie. Drax just sits down and just pets him, doesn't say a word. And like for a second, Rocket starts and he's like, what the fuck? But he just accepts it. He he embraces it and lets and lets Drax comfort him in his moment of pain and sorrow.
0: <sighs> it's so good.
1: <laughs> These movies are so special.
0: Yeah, they really are. <laughs> They're like this first one, even with all of its flaws. It it does such a phenomenal job of establishing this is a found family story with wacky, over-the-top hijinks in space, silly characters, but all of them are driven by this shared sense of loss and trauma and pain. And they have come together and learned how to lean and rely on each other to deal with their pain and become better people. And... And even the goofiest moments,
1: like Ronin like, I'm going to destroy you all. And then he's cut off by Quill dancing. Mm-hmm. In a lesser movie, that would have just been like, oh, huh, they're undercutting another moment with a joke. But th- it's not just him doing that because he's a goofball. It's because... What do we know about him? He loves music. He's attached to his music. He tries to connect through people through music and dancing.
0: And it works. He uses that. (laughs) Yeah. He uses that. And it's because, specifically, Peter Quill is trying to avoid the seriousness of his trauma and pain by being a goofball. The fact that he undercuts a very serious, intense moment with that is showing how he's weaponized his own need to avoid, like, serious moments. Like, he's learned how to use his own immaturity as a weapon and a tool against others, not just as a way to cope himself so it fits his character perfectly for him to do like a fucking dance off against a guy who's about to blow up a planet
1: (laughs) yep (sighs) at the end we get a little bit of exposition from the Nova Corps that maybe the reason Quill was able to hold the stone for so long is that he might not be human Mm -hmm. they've all decided to you know stay a team and kind of gallivant around the galaxy and uh off to the next adventure yeah um I, before we uh, segue into Volume Two, I just want to say that the three act like set piece is also kind of a problem with Marvel movies. Yeah, but I think all three Guardians movies avoid it. The atmosphere battle in the skies of uh, Xandar mm-hmm. is awesome. With the, with the ships, the ship the ships designs are awesome. Um, it's it's really cool, just like Star Wars-y space battle stuff. And that juxtaposed with like the the team uh, fighting Ronin's goons and his ship, the Dark Aster, which is a badass name. Yeah, badass design too. It's just this
0: big fucking like this big twisted <laughs> sort of like obelisk. Just... Yeah.
1: Aesthetically, everything with Ronin is cool as shit. It's just too bad he sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so um yeah the, uh, the 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 third act action in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 is really good.
0: And I think it works um, because in that final battle uh, there's so many multiple things they're trying to accomplish that makes it more than just beat up the bad guy. Because they want to beat Ronan, they want to kill Ronan, but they're also trying to protect Xandar, get the Infinity Stone back, they have to get through Nebula, they have to do like all these different things going on. They also have the looming threat of the Ravagers who they have a very tenuous al- alliance with at this moment. Like, There's so many stakes in that final battle that it keeps us from just realizing that this is another, hey, good guys fighting the bad guys to save the world moment.
1: Yes, that's another thing that James Gunn is able to do in all three movies, in my opinion, is create third acts that have a lot of moving pieces that still matter to the story and the characters without it getting lost in like digital noise. Yeah. I, Is there anything you wanted to
0: say? Yeah, before we start I just later? want to preface our discussion of volume two with when I started our discussion of volume one, I said that the first one was probably the most polished overall. And what I meant by that was that I felt like it had probably the most emotional and narrative consistency in that it wasn't as good as the others in its highest moments, but it didn't feel as jarring in its bad moments. Volume two has some of the funniest, best moments in this trilogy but it's also got some of the weirdest dips in quality and i think the biggest point with volume two that i have problems with is the comedy because when this movie is funny it's damn funny but this movie thinks it's a lot funnier than it is and it tries to shove it down the audience's throat interesting because all right i'll i'll get into it
1: when this movie was coming out of course I was hyped cuz I absolutely loved the first one everybody did and it was such a surprise. So there's a lot of hype going into volume 2. And leaving the theater I was actually really disappointed. I'm like that was okay. It just it just wasn't as good as the first one. It wasn't nearly as good as the first one. I rewatched it again mm-hmm. when it hit the de- when it hit Blu-ray and like it all clicked. Like it's like I saw a different movie in the theater. What you, what you just said, a lot of people, that's like their biggest point of contention is that the humor is a lot more inconsistent. I guess we'll we'll get into it later, but I guess I can understand. I don't necessarily agree, but yeah, um, Volume 2 is definitely a movie that I think suffered from the expectations that the first movie set up because when that came out, like we said a million times already, it was a huge surprise. Nobody expected it to just be this amazing, charming out-of-left-field movie. And I think a lot of people just kind of expected to have that same feeling again with Mm -hmm. Volume 2. Like, how come it didn't, like, just utterly surprise me like Volume 1 did? At this point, we're in Phase 3, and Phase 3 does all of the heavy lifting with the world building across the franchise. So, And I kind of think people kind of expected it to do more than just be a sequel, which this this movie is utterly standalone. Oh, like, yeah. Even more than the first one. Absolutely. It's it is just, its its
0: own thing. It which steps is, back. It's one of its greatest strengths. It, it steps <laughs> back from the whole Thanos arc that is really getting ramped up into its, you know, the big finale that we're all pushing towards with Infinity War and Endgame. Like, it was a bold move for this m- movie to step back and be like, we're not going to focus as much on building up Thanos and the Infinity Stones and whatnot. We're going to focus entirely on this story about Peter and his father. It's bigger in scale, in, like, environments and stuff
1: like that, mm-hmm. and sets, but it's smaller in scope than the first one, and I just don't think people at first were, were ready for that. Um, this one is much more of, like, a character piece, whereas- if yeah, it's a character- it's- it's- a, I'm sorry if I'm railroading you, but I fucking love Volume
0: 2. <laughs> I, I do, too. Know- no, no, no. Make no mistake, my first- that what i just said about the comedy that was my only main criticism of this movie i think this movie when it's at its best is the best of the trilogy i like the yeah. action the visuals like the character work being done here it's phenomenal in this film but it's the comedy is the one sticking point that i have for it I might need to see. I need to see Volume Three
1: um, a couple more times. I wanted to get it in before this episode, but I just couldn't. Mm-hmm. Volume Three might overtake Volume Two, but at the moment, Volume Two is my favorite of the trilogy and still my favorite MCU movie overall. Right? Because it's just it's a fuck it's a character piece. Yeah. It's somehow James Gunn garnered enough goodwill with the with the surprise success of the first movie to convince Disney and Marvel Studios to make a weird, quirky character piece. Just with Disney money, you know, like, (laughs) so much of this movie is just the characters talking to each other. He masterfully knows what to do with these characters at this point. Yeah. The the way he pairs them off, the dynamics he explores with all of them Mm -hmm. is just
0: a step above. So, just an every regard let's get into some of the character work going on here the main one being peter quill uh meeting his father who is ego the living planet uh from the comics literally played by cut Russell. um he finds out that he is the son of a celestial basically a god he is going through this whole arc of can I trust this guy why wasn't he around when my mother needed him where was he when I was a child but also really wanting to have that father figure that was absent during his childhood because even though he's made steps forward from the first movie in being less of an immature man child he's still very much trapped in in the traumas of his childhood. Peter Quill's entire arc throughout all of these films is getting past his childhood trauma in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. And in this one, it's all about, I didn't have a father figure growing up. I, You know, I only had my mom and then I lost her. And that is like what even like to have a dad, which is a very classic, you know, character arc, but it's done so well with both Kurt Russell and Chris Pratt's performances here. Like, you really believe it. And the fact that Gamora is sort of pushing it along, like I said, it's kind of odd because I get what they're going for is this sort of like maybe she also wants to see him have a good relationship with his father because she doesn't have anything like that in her life with her own issues with Thanos. But it it's this really genuine sort of. Can I trust him? Okay, I'm starting to trust him, but in connecting with my biological family, I'm starting to get pulled away from my newfound family. It does all of this character work, pushing Quill towards realizing what is family. And yeah. by the end, we realize it's not his biological connection to ego. It's his connection through love and shared trauma and codependence, really, with the Guardians. Yeah, he... um Peter
1: has kind of established himself as the leader of the guardians. Mm-hmm. There was never a sort of an agreement between them yeah. as to who was the leader. He just kind of made himself the de facto leader and he's, he's struggling with that decision he made for himself. Yes. He wants everybody to get together and, and get along and kind of do things his way, but he doesn't have the maturity and, 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 and the self-realization enough to achieve that yet. Like you said, um, I really like how he doesn't just fall head over heels for Ego's bullshit immediately. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's constantly on his ass, like most of the time, like for like that first half of their meeting, he's like, well, how come you didn't do this? Or why didn't you do that? Like, he's constantly questioning. He's not sure. It's, on, it's not only until that they're doing that power sharing thing um, from the planet core or whatever. Ego's just like, yes. Oh my God. Amazing. That Peter finally, like, lets his guard down. He's like, uh-oh, oh, I'm being praised by a parental figure. My real parent, my my real father, yeah. I finally
0: have. Unlike Yondu, who threatened to eat him his entire childhood. Yes, yes. <laughs>
1: I I wanted to save Yondu talk for Volume 2, even though he's in Volume 1. Yeah. It was more of a minor element in Volume 1, where, you know, he's had this pirate crew. He was raised by this pirate crew, led by Yondu. The Ravagers. Um, the Ravengers. Yondu, f- fun character in the first one, played by one of my favorite character actor- actors, Michael Rooker. They have this, like, antagonism. You can tell Yandu's an asshole and that they've had a very rough, and let's be frank, abusive yeah. past. But there's just a little hint that Yandu's a bit softer on Peter than he wants to let
0: on. Yondu is very um, much... The father figure who doesn't want to admit he's a father figure and also is trying to toughen up his surrogate child in a universe that he knows is cruel and harsh. Like, what he does to Quill throughout his childhood isn't really... Like, it's wrong, obviously, but you get that there's a sense of motivation behind it beyond just, I was purely an asshole. I was an asshole for the sake of being an asshole. I did this. I raised you this way because it's the way I thought you needed to be raised in this cruel and uncaring galaxy.
1: Yeah, and in in the first one, the whole conflict is like, he wants the, Yondu wants the orb and he's like, Peter, give me the orb if you don't like, kill you he pretends to give it to him at the end of the first one and then on the on yondu's ship he opens it up and it's a troll because Yandu collects little trinkets for his yeah uh, for his control console on the ship and he just looks at it and like he has like this knowing smirk um i'd like to think that he knew that he didn't that peter didn't give him the power stone that's my head cannon. yeah when i first saw volume two
0: like i didn't I didn't expect the whole Yondu-ness of this movie. No, he's so much more important in this one. And like with Rocket and his backstory, getting Yondu's backstory and specifically his connection with Quill recontextualizes their entire relationship in the first one. Because in the first one, you can see them as sort of extraneous. It's like, hey, this whole, you know, space pirate crew that... Quill's hanging with all the time. There's sort of like this extra faction that we didn't really need for the main story to be told. But looking back on it with the context of Volume 2, it totally is necessary to understand Quill's trauma because not only was Quill traumatized by, you know, losing his mother and whatnot, he was abducted by aliens at a very young age, forced to work as a space pirate, and constantly threatened by them. But now that we know that all of those threats as bad as they were kind of rang hollow because yondu always locked him beneath the Mm -hmm. surface beneath all the abuse and trauma and everything yondu genuinely cared about peter and it's only here in volume two where he finally has the emotional vulnerability to admit that to peter by the end of the film Mm
1: -hmm. when i was first watching it in in the theater like First, I don't know why. Like, for, like barely anything in, in on on my first viewing connected with me. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I was just kind of like, uh, like I liked him enough in the first one, but I don't know why he's got a. I don't know why like we have to bring in everybody from the first one. Like it's just kind of what's the point? But that's why it benefits so well from from repeat viewings because you wouldn't think that pairing off Rocket and Yondu. For most of the movie, it oh, would be God, so yes. amazing for them as characters. You wouldn't think pairing off Drax with a new character, Mantis, would be so good for the characters. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think the sisterly antagonism between Gamora and Nebula, who Nebula is
0: low-key, like, one of the best characters in the entire Absolutely, MCU, just going to say that. Let me say this. Would- two underrated characters in these franchises, Nebula and Kraglin. Good old Kraglin. I fucking love <laughs> Kraglin. Looking back, he has some of the funniest moments. He has one of the most consistent character arcs throughout these films as well. <laughs>
1: yep, and he's like, a, he's like a third removed sec, like, yeah, character.
0: he's just this doofus ravager that was basically Yondu's hot man in the first movie. But yeah, like you said, this movie takes so much of the foundation that was placed in the first one. All these things that were hinted at, all these moving pieces, and starts fleshing them out in what is literally a character piece film so much of pulling apart and showing how these characters think and work and interact with one another yondu and rocket's a fantastic pairing because yondu makes this explicit they're the same character they're both these gruff loner assholes who want to put up a facade of being tougher and smarter and better than everyone else around them because they're hurt and they can't stand the thought of being hurt again Nebula yeah, and, and Gamora's arc in this one, where they f- both act like they hate each other, but deep down they're really just angry over their shared childhood trauma and blame each other instead of the abusive figure who was tormenting them. That's phenomenal. Yeah, it's uh, so many just disarming moments. Drax and Mantis, so Jackson, and Mantis is so good because oh. she's a surrogate daughter <laughs> for him. And oh my God, one of the best acted scenes in this film is where it's, it's it, so subtle. Preach it. I subtle. know what you're going to say. Drax and Mantis are just looking out over these pools in Ego's garden. Mantis has the ability to read other people's emotions. She can feel them if she touches the person. And throughout this whole bit so far, Drax has become more of a goofball. He's sillier. He's starting to let loose around the Guardians. And he, you start seeing this movie and you think, oh, okay, they're pushing Drax towards more of like the comedic relief. He's sort of, you know, lost his more serious edge um, but here he's just looking out over these pools and he's like, You remind me a lot of my daughter. Uh she was innocent. And he's just looking very sort of stoically out over these pools. Mantis looks down at him, touches him, you see her antenna light up the way they do whenever she's reading somebody's emotions, and she just gasps and like starts like sobbing, not like in a full like breakdown sob, but just this like repressed sadness and pain. And all the while, Drax is just sort of staring forward, not really showing anything on his face. But you can see through Mantis all of the pain still going on inside of him from the lo- continued loss of his child. Uh, it's such a beautiful moment. It's so good. It's,
1: it's easy to say that they just made Drax more of a buffoon. Mm-hmm. I see it as he's more of himself because his time with the Guardians
0: has allowed him... To heal a little bit And holy shit, Um, just like with Rocket Volume 3 recontextualizes Drax's arc (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, You you said uh, repressed, I wouldn't say um, The pain that Mantis felt was repressed um, At that moment it's just, it's him just being able to sit with it. It's not, no. it's not his driving factor. No, no, no.
0: I, I didn't mean it coming from Drax in the sense of repressed, but like Mantis could have broken down sobbing in that moment from the pain and sadness that she felt. But instead, yeah. like when she touches him, she's it's more like something trying to force its way out of her. Like she's gasping a little bit. The tears do start sliding, but she's not like weeping openly. She's just more like, <gasps> <gasps> <sighs> like it, just, it feels more like a pain than just an absolute sorrow. Yeah, and just
1: just the device of using another character to develop, <laughs> yeah. using a character to develop another character through. Yeah, is is such like a brilliant little like master stroke. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, and. Volume two is when like Drax like really won my heart over because he's just a he's just a guy and he's just he's just trying to have fun he's just wanting to have fun yeah <laughs> he's 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 constantly laughing he's he's enjoying things around him the part where like. Ego makes the bubbles, and like he's just he, he loves the bubbles. And like <laughs> some people are like, Oh my god, Drex just laughs so much in this movie. And I'm like, How could you not just love it? He's and then Batista is just so on point. He's he's got every this, line delivery is just oh,
0: he's got kiss. this renewed love of laugh. And joy in his heart that, like, if you look at it on the surface, you're like, okay, they're just pushing him towards comedic relief now. He's the big, loud, dumb doofus, and everybody just sort of, you know, plays around him. But instead, like you said, you can see that now that he's gotten his revenge on Ronan, now that he's avenged his wife and child, and is starting to reconnect with the family again, we're seeing more of his true self start to break through he's not drax the destroyer he's and this is the bit in volume three that recontextualizes everything he's drax the the Dash. he's this big goofy sort of fun-loving guy who has this very strong sense of connection and protection towards the people in his life and yeah you start to see that here. And if you look at it on the surface level, it's like, he's not, he's just a goofball, but he's not just a goofball. He's bringing more joy to people around him. And there's also a lot of moments where despite the goofiness of it, he's trying to share his own life wisdom with the others. Like he has a moment with Peter early (laughs) on where he's trying to tell him like, Gamora is not the one for you. There are those who dance and those who don't. Uh, (laughs) And it's a very funny scene, really digging into his whole like, I saw my wife at one of the war rallies. Everyone flailing about. She didn't move a muscle. One might think she, like was she was dead. dead. <laughs> yes, like it's very my funny. My penis would be coming <laughs> It's very funny, but at the same time you can tell he's trying to sort of make this connection with Peter and give him some guidance in the way a father would. And it's that and same sort of awkward love. love.
1: Yeah. It's that he says, says it with such love <laughs> for his wife. He's saying the most ridiculous things, yeah. but it's it's he doesn't see it as ridiculous because he's not that person. He's just saying it with such love, and that's what makes it work on so many levels.
0: Mm-hmm. And it has that same sort of awkwardness of like The way that a talk with your dad might have, you know, sometimes your dad means well, (laughs) but he's just weird and like he's giving you advice that you don't really get. Like, that's kind of what it feels like with Drax in some moments. It's a very real sort of take on like, yeah, this guy is just doing his best to help the rest of these people feel good and safe and whatnot.
1: I think an overall view of where the team is at with all, with themselves is needed. We probably should have set that up earlier. Yeah, like we said, um, Quill is appointed himself the de facto leader. Doesn't quite know how to do that um, because his own <laughs> ego <laughs> gets in the way. Drax is just kind of like he he's, he's found his place in the team. Rocket. Is pushing everybody away because he doesn't uh, know how to deal with being part. He's scared. uh, He found. He's terrified. Family. He's terrified. Gamora is just trying to be like the mediator and the logical one and the problem solver. And Groot's a baby who doesn't know what the fuck is going on. Okay, and and they all parent the the movie takes the time to establish that they're all like parenting him in their own ways yes
0: and it's fantastic the way that each of them interacts with Groot shows all of their connection to him as a character and as a found family because like Drax whenever he's around Groot it's actually funnier from Groot's end because Groot will stop dancing because he knows Drax hates (laughs) dancing (laughs) even though you know uh, Groot loves to dance he'll stop dancing so that he doesn't piss off Drax Rocket is very much trying to teach Groot and he's very much, you know, making sure Groot's safe all the time. Uh, Gamora, like there's a very cute scene in the opening where she's like, Groot, get out of here. You're going to get hurt. And Uh, like he waves (laughs) to her and she's like, hi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of that opening scene after the prologue, we get a brief prologue with like Peter's mother and Ego while they were on Earth. But that opening scene with that first fight I think it's even better than the one from volume one, because it's, I would have to agree. It's It's, so well done. They've been sent on this mission to stop this big, crazy space monster with all these tentacles from destroying like these batteries. And the whole fight takes place in the background as (laughs) Groot is little baby Groot is dancing to Mr. Blue sky. (laughs) It's it's just,
1: it's it's that kind of just out of left field charm mm -hmm. that these movies excel. at, like, How ballsy is it to set up a big epic opening action scene and not really show you the action because you're watching a little tree baby dance
0: It's all one long sweeping shot following Groot as he's walking around the place, just dancing. And in the background, you've got lasers going off and this monster roaring and Drax gets like thrown down like 17 times, just like getting smashed against the floor. Explosions going off. You feel the intensity of this fight, like it's this big, intense battle going on. But it's also just this little, cute little tree guy's dancing around having fun because this is just what we do. We're the Guardians of the Galaxy. We have fun and do crazy stuff like this. And it, I mean, yeah,
1: and it sets up where his character's at mm-hmm. too. Like
0: he's a little baby I don't know no
1: better. Yeah, as a yeah, as a person, and it it, it sets up, it sort of symbolizes the dynamic between everybody else. You mm-hmm. know, it's just that. The dynamic between everybody else is all just like this this flurry and noise because they're getting used to to being around each other mm-hmm. and sidestep a lot of people i've I've heard man media literacy has just gone out the window people like they just repeat the same thing from the first one in the first one they 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 don't get along and fight in the second one they don't get along and fight. And I'm like, do you people not understand context <laughs> Do you not, like the first one is about learning to come together. The second one is about, okay, we're together now. How do we deal with this? Yeah. there's a, How do we live with this? The first
0: one is about finding that connection. The second one is about maintaining, maintaining it and strengthening it. Yeah. And then the third one is about that connection driving every action we do yeah it like the found family trope is all throughout these films and you see it shape with these characters arcs because it's all about connection between these characters and those connections change and move with the characters themselves shit
1: i lost my train of thought again
0: i can get it back i can get it back <laughs> this this movie <laughs> I also I would say has some of the best visuals and action like that opening oh, yeah. scene obviously but Rocket in the woods against this Ravagers it's just this dark <laughs> like it's like this dark woodland scene the ships crashed in the middle of it all of the Ravagers are like sneaking up on it and Rocket just starts pummeling him them with all these traps he set he set it like these blow darts to shoot tranquilizers into a bunch of them he's got these weird gravity mines that like set off things he's just dodging up through the trees while he's just laughing and playing music and <laughs> just messing with these guys. Fantastic action scene that shows also how much of a smug prick he is. Um, Yondu's arrow on the Ravager ship whenever oh. they're making their big escape. Like, it's just this... Mm-hmm. That that arrow is one of the coolest weapons in the MCU. Pro- maybe the coolest, because... Yondu has to whistle to use it. His head glows anytime it's like being used. And it just leaves this streaking trail of red behind it as it zips and flies in all these weird, chaotic directions and just like tears through anything that it touches. Like people, metal, ships, anything. That thing can go through. Anything, and it's such a cool weapon. And they're just sort of like walking around casually on the ship while Yondu whistles and completely destroys the Ravagers. Well, the, the mutinous side of the rat. Yeah. yeah. There's, the, there's, the, others the others were there's, dead. There's
1: a mutiny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all, all his allies were murdered by that, by the assholes, by TASERFACE!
0: <laughs> okay, so let's, we'll get, let's touch on to TASERFACE. T- you want to get TASERFACE out of the way? Because this is my biggest problem is the comedy. Like I said, when this movie is funny, it's damn hilarious. But this movie thinks it's funnier than it is, and. I think the worst moments are the ones where the characters are laughing at their own jokes. The whole taser face bit is bad. I don't think it's a really funny gag in the first place where just like we got this weird, scarred up faced alien character And he calls himself Taserface for some reason. But they stretch it out so much because Rocket just starts laughing at him and then making fun of him for it. And like, what was your second choice, scrotum hat? It's just this big, long running gag of, oh, this guy's got a dumb name. Oh, this guy's got a dumb name. Oh, this guy's got a dumb name. Isn't it funny? All these other characters are laughing. Laugh along with them, please there's a lot of moments in this and taser faced is the worst where the characters are just laughing so hard at their own jokes that they're making. And it's not really that funny.
1: I will half agree. I
0: I agree that the joke
1: just plays itself out a little bit too long, but I think the setup of the joke is actually a bit more justified on, on again, repeat viewing because in theater, in the theater, I'm like, my God, yeah, this, this is just, this is not landing. This is a fucking dud. But when taken into context that Rocket's using it to deflect, it's, it's kind of him putting on a performance to stall. And, and on that, on that character basis, it's a bit more tolerable for me um, because I interpret it more than just being like a joke for a joke's sake. Um, it's, it's. I agree That's it's not really that funny. It does drag on, but it comes from a story point and a character point, which makes it go down easier for me at least.
0: Eh, I don't know. It just, it didn't work for me. And there's other moments where characters just start laughing at their own jokes and whatnot that they're making. And it, it just doesn't work, but that's the worst I, one by far.
1: Yeah. Um, it is. It's, it's, yeah, it could have been better, <laughs> but yeah. I think it does have justification within the story and character to make it go down easy. Oh, but it is followed by one of my favorite jokes in the movie where Yondu and Rocket are trapped and they've kidnapped Groot and made him part of the crew and gave him his, his own little jumpsuit. And they're beating him up and torturing him. And it's so sad and fucked up. And yeah. he's just like, <laughs> he's so dejected. And um, but uh, Yandu's like, hey, man, you got to get my prototype Finn. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and then Groot just goes and gets <laughs> <this> everything. It's extended <laughs> scene of just like everything that's not the fucking, fin, including a severed like human toe. To toe. <laughs> Cracks me up every time. It, that is a good gag.
1: Comes, it just smash cuts to him holding a toe, a human toe. Like, huh? Mm-hmm. And Rocket's just like, please tell me you have like a refrigerator of severed human toes on the ship. <laughs> and he's <laughs> just like, no. And he's like, ah, uh, goddamn it. <laughs> <laughs> And then you think – and then like the joke, like this is an extended joke that succeeds in like being extended in that it starts off funny, drags out and then circles back around being funny again because you finally think – Groot is going to get the fin because he's in the right room. He sees it in the drawer and he's like, (gasps) and then he gets something that's right next. to
0: Yeah. (laughs) And then Kraglin finally steps in, which let's, let's talk about Kraglin. I mentioned him earlier. Craglin is both really, really, really funny as a character for the little bits that he gets, but also his character journey is so clearly established. First movie when we see him, he seems to be sort of like Yondu's right-hand man. There's not much to him. He just sort of like hops up the captain any time the captain's trying to do something. Um but here in the second, yeah, Captain's gonna say yeah, stuff. <laughs> got, got to say stuff. Uh, but in the here in the second one, we see him start questioning Yondu and everything, like the scene where the Ravagers have got Rocket surrounded. Uh, they all think, "Hey, we're gonna capture Rocket and lure in Peter and get our revenge and also get all this money." But Yondu says, "No, we're not gonna do that. We're just gonna sell these batteries, which aren't worth as much." But. At this point, Craglin's like, that's not fair, Captain. It ain't right. You let Peter get away with anything, but you wouldn't do the same for us. That ain't fair, Captain. And like, it's this genuine moment of him feeling betrayed by Yondu and thinking that Yondu is making the wrong decision, but he accidentally gets tied up in the mutiny. You know, a mutiny occurs. Yondu loses his uh, thing that lets him control the arrow on his head uh, and they all get tied up and So many of the Ravagers get killed, all the ones that were still supporting Yondu. And when Kraglin comes back around to Yondu, like he has this really soft, innocent moment where he gives him the fin where he's like, they killed all my friends. And it's it's this very soft, subdued performance. But you can feel the pain of him being like, I didn't realize that me speaking up, standing up for myself once was going to do this. I didn't realize it was going to destroy our entire way of life. And from that point on, you see him trying to uphold the legacy of Yondu. Even after this movie, when Yondu dies, he's trying to uphold Yondu's legacy out of this mixed sense of like guilt, but also pride in who Yondu was and what the Ravagers were. Kraglin has this absolute arc from being just the hot man into betraying yondu into redeeming Hello? himself into trying to uphold legacy and it all Hello? works so well uh-oh did i lose you can you, can hear, you me? hear me
1: i can hear you now sweet
0: okay okay we'll cut out all that de- air where'd i lose you
1: <laughs> you were um just talking about uh craglin uh living up to yondu
0: yeah there's just this very clear arc throughout all the films of Kraglin as being the loyal follower to betraying him not sort of uh, sort of unintentionally betraying Yandu to redeeming himself to trying to uphold Yandu's legacy
1: Yes. And And he's damn incredible. funny. <laughs> he's very funny. Like, um I
0: love that bit where like he's asking Nebula, like, what are you gonna do with your share of the money? And she goes on this long rant about how she's gonna hunt down Gamora and then Thanos and use every weapon in the galaxy to destroy her father. And he's just like Yeah, I was thinking more like a pretty necklace or a cool hat. Something <laughs> to make the other ladies go, Ooh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um Craglin is just another example of how far Gunn takes the characters. Mm-hmm. Like I don't I don't know like what kind of crack he took to like understand how to make everybody work. Yeah. Um but he did. And oh God, who do you even talk about next? Um I guess the central we could circle back around to ego, Peter, and Yandu yes. again. Yeah. Um or do you want to wait? For last, and then first to do Gamora and Nebula.
0: Let's do Gamora and Nebula. I feel like we can knock this one out pretty quick.
1: Okay. I think Gamora is a much stronger character in this one. Yes. Um, she's let her guard down like everybody else has except for Rocket, where she's still kind of like this, the stern one, the, the badass one, but you can tell she lets Peter in more. And like, he's like the only one that she's allows herself to be vulnerable with. You can tell that she really kind of wants to fix things and kind of like be the problem solver, even though she doesn't know how, which I I like because, you know, she comes from this, this tragic abusive relationship and this terrible... Thing with her sister where they were pitted against each other, and I like how that doesn't manifest with like her being standoffish and not wanting to connect. I like how it manifests with her, like, okay, this is a second chance, yeah, so I'm not gonna let that, I'm not gonna let what happened with Thanos carry over into this and burden that and make me be cynical about she it. She
0: almost wants to make her relationship with the other Guardians work in as a way to sort of spot her relationship with yeah. Nebula and Thanos because they capture Nebula pretty early on and she's super like standoffish and mean towards Nebula. Like, Nebula asks for that, like, yarrow root or whatever and, like... it's not right. Yeah, Gamora's like, it's not right. Also, I hate you. Like, she doesn't show any kindness towards her sister until they have their big clash at the end of Act 2, where Nebula literally comes screaming out of the sky with a freaking <laughs> ravager ship using every single gun on the ship to try and blow Gamora up as she's running through this field and then crashes it into a cave trying to destroy Gamora out of this pure hatred and spite and Gamora is just running for her life and they finally have their cathartic moment where like they finish their fight they're both worn out and Nebula is like I beat you. Say I won. I beat you. And Gamora refuses to admit it and she's like, "He kept tearing me apart and you never let me win once." Like Nebula is so hurt from the fact that this person who she spent her entire childhood with never gave her the opportunity to win and she knew the consequence of her failure because Nebula was literally torn apart by Thanos and replaced with cybernetics to make her better and
1: yeah she's basically a cyborg yeah. because of the horrendous abuse that Thanos put her through her entire childhood.
0: And she's blaming Gamora for it because even though Thanos was the one who did it, Gamora could have let her win at some point and, you know, spared her some of that trauma, but she didn't. And by the end, we realize that Gamora, Gamora makes a great point. It's like, I was a little girl, too. I was a child just trying to make it to the next day. We both did what we had to to survive.
1: Yeah, it, it says so much just about how that kind of, you know, parental trauma that an abusive parent can, you know... Can pit people against in, each other. In, in, their, in their children, and it just, it manifests, unfortunately, in hatred and animosity between the siblings when it should be directed at the parent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because, I mean, that's all they knew. All they knew was fighting each other, because that's all Thanos, you know... That's all he did with them. And when she says, when Nebula says, all I wanted was a sister, like, all he wanted to do was win and all I wanted was a sister. That's just like needle drop. Yeah. Boom. Just it's, that's like the second big chest punch in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> First was Mantis touching Drax and having that cry. Second was, the, I just wanted a sister. Boom. And like, you can tell that's like Gamora's come to Jesus moment. Yeah. She's just like, oh my God. Like <laughs> Yeah, I get it now. It, it was a, it was the Danny DeVito in that it's always sunny episode <laughs> for
0: Gamora. Yeah, and it was the moment that really endeared me to Nebula as a character. Like this is love not love, Nebula. This is not just another gruff asshole in this galaxy. This is another incredibly hurt person acting on their trauma in the way that they know how.
1: And Karen Gillan just puts so much into it Oh absolutely She's so she's under all these prosthetics Completely covered And like she conveys like So much intensity and emotion mm-hmm. she, she, Even though she could kill me With a snap of her finger I just want to give her a hug <laughs> like, there's this, I just want to be like Oh Nebs come here let me give you a hug <laughs> seeth-
0: There's this seething anger In everything she says And you can tell that under that Anger is a layer of hurt
1: Just so much. Yeah. Like these movies are so good at like taking these, these gruff assholes who mostly aren't really good people and just exposing the nerve of their humanity under, you know, what they present. Mm -hmm. Like, because again, in lesser movies, a character like Nebula would just come off. She could be annoying. She could be one note, but every like venomous thing she says, there's that, Undercurrent of her abuse and her pain, like that's just how she knows how to cope and and work through life because that's all she's ever known. When like she's like shown like softness and tenderness, she's, there's something about like her her black contacts, her all black eyes mm-hmm. that just like make her look like a like a puppy dog or a deer in headlights. Yeah, and, like
0: it's it's imposing when she's angry, but when she's uncomfortable or unsure there's this like weakness that you see in that those eyes that makes her so vulnerable looking.
1: And how darkly poignant is it that this character is literally just like wants to find wholeness when her body, it's just this amalgamation of just parts, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. When, when your body is just parts, parts that have been torn off and put, together, you know, how can you be a whole person? Classic. It might seem, it might sound like an obvious trope or a cliche it trope. It is, but, but it, works. <laughs> it works. It works so well. <laughs> and I just, I love visually that, that whole scene because Gamora, um, she realizes that Peter is uh, being sold a bill of goods by Ego, mm-hmm. even though she was originally on board with it, but she knows what a manipulative father is. And so, she's caught wise. So, she's, like, fed up of everybody's bullshit because she just had a fight with Peter. He's like, I'm gonna... I'm, I am got a daddy now. Why do you want to take this away from me? And, like, the shot is, like, asymmetrical. She's just, like, sitting off to the side in this field, stewing. And, like, these, like, two <laughs> reeds are just like... Yeah. <laughs> and she, like, she just like swords them in half. Yeah. <laughs> and then you hear the, the nebula ship just in the distance. Just, <laughs> It's such a <laughs> it's, good shot. The visuals, the the shot design, mm. the, the sound design, everything. Oh in my God. It's just so good. All
0: of these movies have a fantastic soundtrack and use them phenomenally. I think volume two does the best with it though. Like, oh, ev- how did we not talk? I about know. The have we not at this point? Like all of these movies, fantastic soundtracks, pop, pop songs from like the 80s and everything all tied to Quill's childhood but like this one in particular.
1: Volume two is definitely yeah, the apex that, of the soundtrack. That
0: opening with Mr. Blue Sky sets a perfect tone for that action scene. The chain is used here in an early Achoo. scene where the guardians are like sort of separating and there's a lot of tension between them. And then when they come back together for the big battle in the finale, and Peter finally chooses them over ego using the chain again to show the reconnection is Flawless, like flawless. <laughs> just musical stand up scoring. and cheer,
1: pump your chest, just. Mm-hmm. And, and and even the songs that are just meant to like be like.
0: Yeah, southern communi- knots. The position. Southern knots during rockets southern battle Mates. in the woods is fantastic. Like it's just a. Perfect use of the music Wham bang,
1: mm-hmm. and The, the sovereign, the, the gold people which Brandy Awesome,
0: awesome tie Brandy Is thematically used, the lyrics Of Brandy are used thematically Throughout the entire movie by Ego, we haven't talked about Ego Enough as character yet, we've talked About his connection yeah. with Quill, but like this Is one of the better MCU Villains, and the big Massive re- step up from Ruin, absolutely And the big reason is because he has a genius genuine connection and reason to interact with the protagonists. Like, he's Quill's father, and he genuinely wants Quill to join him on this mission he has. He's another genocidal maniac, like most of the villains are, but, like, he genuinely wants his son to join him in this, and to get along with him. There's The conflict isn't just good guy versus bad guy now, it's, like, two conflicting ideologies, one of them obviously wrong, but the people involved in it are connected in a way that makes their conflict personal Mm -hmm. ego just like every
1: member of the guardians you know he's dealing with uh, isolation sense of isolation a sense of place loneliness he he explains to everybody how he was lonely for so long because you know he describes how he just kind of came into being and like just like was a consciousness for like eons Mm -hmm. and then learned how to like control matter and himself and become the celestial body his his overall like goal again is very very simple very comic book but at least you understand it and it makes sense and it has thematic purpose that's explored unlike ronin Kurt Russell is just I I'll, I'll watch anything Kurt Russell does. Um <laughs> as an audience member, you know ninety nine point nine percent that like Ego's gonna turn out to be an asshole. Yeah. It's not supposed to be like a <gasps> moment when he reveals himself. You're just waiting for that shoe to drop.
0: Oh. Um but there is a <gasps> moment oh, yeah. in this. But the the envelope w- that they push. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Before we get to that though, yeah. I love I love picking up on things. I didn't notice before. Um, Just this past watch I did, I think was the fourth time I've seen the movie. Mm -hmm. When he's trying to get Peter to get in touch with the the planet, which is Ego. Ego is the planet. Yeah. And Peter's able to do it. Ego just lets out this, like, really, really, like, just...
0: Yes! A wild, like, wild elation. Like, completely... He's like, oh my god, finally! And
1: when you figure out what what everything is and when it clicks together... That's not like a yes, oh my God, my son did it, yay boy. It's, oh my God, finally I found the one that is able to handle what I want them to do. Yeah. It's, it's a sinister yes. Mm-hmm. And we, we're not quite sure
0: why it is yet. And it's... And the payoff of that is so good because he's another genocidal Be- maniac. He maniac. S- he wanted connection. He felt isolated and lonely, so he sought out life. And when he found it, he found it so disappointing. Yep. And the whole he says that. Yep. Yeah, exactly. His yeah, he exact words, <laughs> because he sees life as something beneath him. So when he realizes, hey this didn't give me the fulfillment I wanted. Let's fix that by making the entire universe me. You you suddenly realize that like, oh, his entire interactions with Peter wasn't him trying to connect with someone that should be close to him. It was him trying to mold his son into someone he wants him to be. Another manipulative parent in this galaxy full of them.
1: If Peter... Wasn't able to handle the connection though he would have ended up like the thousands of corpses that Gamora and Nebula
0: find in yeah. the cave after their fight. Yeah. Um, Which also contextualizes Yondu's actions from the past few films. Yes. Yondu was the one oh, who God, had been that's... delivering these children <laughs> and he didn't realize that Ego was just killing them left and right.
1: Oh, let's oh, let's get into it because... Um...
0: Let's get into the big finale. <laughs> so let's the get big, into it. The um... big shoe drop moment. We've, we're realizing, okay, Ego's evil. He's crazy. He's mind controlling quick. Well, at this point, he's shown him some sort of vision of basically infinity. And Peter has lost his grip on reality, his connection to everything except this vast, infinite world. And Ego lets it slip that he's the one who killed Peter. Peter's mother. And I remember sitting there in theaters and gasping out loud when I heard that because I <laughs> I knew he was going to yeah, be boy. evil. <laughs> from the start, we all knew Eagle Ego was going to be evil, but to, for that scene from the first film to have all been because Ego was a petty bitch who didn't want to go back to earth. He Ego was starting to feel genuine feelings for a mortal person and he's like, "I can't do that. I'm a killer." yep that and like he doesn't and he doesn't say like and that's why I killed your mom
1: like he just he offhandedly says it because he feels like because he's got Peter in the palm of his hand Peter's like on that brink of just like completely going to the other side and he's just offhandedly like and that's why it killed me to put that tumor in her head and James Gunn does a zo- dolly zoom, which is where it's it's the jaws shot. Yeah. It's where you zoom the camera lens in while you physically pull the camera back. That mm-hmm. creates like that disorienting look. That, yeah that Who? and like it's so cool because at this point in the movie you forget that Quill's kind of a badass and a hothead. Yeah. Like, even though he was completely under ego's spell and like about to get lost you said you killed his mom. And then like, and his eyes snaps
0: his... him out of it
1: immediately, and he just starts, bl- he starts blasting. <laughs> he
0: just starts blasting. <laughs> blows Ego's mortal form to pieces. <laughs> oh, God. Ego's also just such a fund villain because of the way his powers work like you can literally tear his body apart as long as the planet's core is fine he's just gonna get right back up like Mm -hmm. there's no stopping him and the way his body regenerates too where it's like just a floating nervous system and then like muscle and bone starts to grow back over it and the skin peels back over like it's so like grotesque and cool
1: yeah it's it's really cool um i'm kurt russell pretty much mostly disappears from the third act after they destroy his his human form Mm -hmm. um it's really cool and kind of daring to like keep the villain as we've known him off screen and only represent him through like different like formations that he takes that's that's really cool i I love that choice because he'll take like form of like rocks or like he'll he'll put his face in something when he comes back as like the nervous system. That's a, like a pure like Watchman Dr. Manhattan move. Um, (laughs) pretty unnerving. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No pun intended. Unnerving. Mm Yondu. This whole movie, this, this movie, this trilogy really is about parents and fathers and them fucking you up and fucking you over. And, Doing right by yourself and others
0: moving forward. it's about it's um, about the pain and healing that family allows for, whether yes. that's be your biological family or your found family.
1: When we're introduced to Yandu again in the beginning of the movie, he's at a robot brothel. <laughs> the ravengers come and like they pretty much kick him out. And uh, Sylvester Stallone in a um, an extended cameo. He's like, "You ravagers don't deal in kids, you know. You broke the code, and like, I, we kind of don't know what he's talking about. I guess we we know it's about Peter. No, we, know, we know it's about Peter because we know it's about Peter. Later on, they explain why.
0: we explain that it's about all those kids he was giving to ego. Well, yeah, I meant like at at the oh at, at that, that moment. moment. Yeah, okay,
1: yeah, and that sets up you know Yandu's vulnerability and in his catalyst for for change and with with him being laid low by the ravengers and connecting with rocket i i love that whole speech he gives rocket you know like you, you push everybody away because you're afraid you know if you feel a little bit of love you know you're gonna just be reminded of how big that hole in you is you know i know who you are boy you're me and like i just love michael rooker he delivers every line like a fucking champ yeah I don't consider it a redemption when he decides to go and rescue Peter with Rocket. It's just a guy who knows he fucked up and is going to try to do right this at least this one
0: time. You literally just described a redemption. <laughs> that's no, that's not a redemption. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's that's literally a redemption. redemption is someone who does something
1: wrong and then atones. Well, see, you're you're talking about atonement, not redemption. Okay, there's there's a difference. Okay, anyway. describe the difference for me, Mister <laughs> Thesaurus. I'm not going to describe the difference because I feel like we've dug myself into a hole here. Yeah,
0: because so, you uh... know you're wrong. He's literally having a redeeming no. moment. No, no. <laughs> Whether or not it's whether or not he's can be considered a good person by the end of this movie is a, an argument that we could have. That's a whole moral debate. Okay, that, that but, that's that's what
1: I meant to say. You can say he's is still
0: that... not a good person by the end of that film yes. that's fine but he is yes. redeeming himself in the fact that he's trying to okay. undo the pain that he's caused
1: yes okay <laughs>
0: during <laughs> the fight
1: uh, Peter's mask that allows him to breathe in space gets busted mm-hmm. and got one spacesuit th- and one jetpack that rocket gives him everybody else is taking off getting the hell out of there because they managed to blow up Ego's planet brain it's all coming down Peter's just kind of like stuck there.
0: Before we get uh, before we get to that moment, I do want to say I love that last line, that last exchange between Ego and Peter, because like mm-hmm. literally the planet's falling apart. Groot blew up the bomb, and like Ego is like they're begging peter actually it's right before the bomb goes off like ego is fighting against peter peter can still control the planet because you know he learned how and he's been basically holding ego off from stopping the bomb from being detonated and he like ego grabs him by the shoulders is begging him at this point he's like if you do this you'll just be another mortal you'll just be human and peter says what's so wrong with that and ego just screams as the bomb goes off because he <laughs> that cannot wasn't how I wanted it to go. He cannot conceive the idea that like being a regular person, being a regular life form is enough. Like he's mm-hmm. so wrapped up in literally his own ego that like he cannot fathom living as a mortal.
1: Yeah, perfect great, death for him. Great final line from uh from Peter there as he defeats his Biological father, mm-hmm. but um, but he yeah. might have been his father. But <laughs> I'll get to
0: it. yeah, they're flying um, up. They're trying to get out of the exploding world.
1: Let me let me go through it. Let me go through it because it makes Erica cry every time mm-hmm. because she loves Michael Ricket like I do, mm-hmm. and um, makes me cry every time too. Now, um, he tells Rocket like like go on like you got to give me this like I, I haven't done anything right in my whole damn life and Rocket's like oh, all right man. And he gets on the ship and then Yandu finds him, puts the breather on his, on Peter's head, flies him up into the uh, atmosphere. You know, this is when Peter realizes that there's only one breather and Yandu's probably going to die. Just the, uh, he, Yandu looks at him and he just, from his heart, just sincerely like tells him like, I'm sorry, I didn't do anything of it, any of it right. I'm down, da- I'm damn proud you're my boy. And freezes in space and dies as he's touching Peter's face tenderly as Peter breaks down and cries. Mm -hmm. It's, it (laughs) it gets me. It gets me every time. It's so.
0: And then it's followed by this beautiful funeral scene. First, the guardians uh, are all gathered together. Peter's finally having this realization that as bad of a father that Yondu was, he did teach him everything he knows. Like he did raise him and in his final moments, yeah, he realizes he was sort—he did have sort of a kick-ass dad for all his flaws. And Yondu is sent out into space, and in this like I think they like send him out through one of the engines or something, because like these colorful flames are all swirling around the body. And all of the Ravagers show up. Rocket contacted them to let them know what they did, and all of the Ravagers start setting off these fireworks in Yondu's memory. And as the Guardians are all standing there like watching this funeral for yondu they all have their character arcs in this film tie together because rocket's standing there watching all of these people and he's like they did come his friends did come even though he was a jerk and even though he stole batteries he didn't needed (laughs) explicitly because rocket stole some batteries from the yeah the the sovereign at the the beginning yeah like it ties all of his stuff together we see drax and mantis mantis is like they've had this cute little bickering back and forth where drax kept calling her ugly (laughs) it's really funny and she's like one of the cutest designed characters i love the way mantis looks but like he's always called her ugly throughout the movie and like she's just staring at the fireworks and she's like it's beautiful and drax is like and so are you on the inside. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Peter and Gamora finally... like hold hands and share that unspoken thing that they've been talking about their connection that's gotten stronger throughout the film they're starting to finally realize their romance is something more yeah everything just ties together as the ravagers fucking craglin uh (laughs) craglin sees the ravagers come and he just starts screaming in like elation he pounds his chest with like the ravager like salute it's just he's tearing up it's
1: beautiful it's this beautiful extended just funeral and eulogy scene, and the fact that it's over Yandu, yeah, you know, a, a character that's <laughs> in the comics, you know, d-list at best, <laughs> but th- this is this is where adaptation, you know, shows how strong it is because if you're just thinking in terms of like character popularity or relevance. Yeah. Man, how come Yondu gets like this big, glorious, magnificent, emotional death and not this person or that person? Like, cause that's not, that's not what it's about. That's not how you tell stories, you know? And, and the fact that Yandu's death is like this linchpin, not just in the guardians trilogy, but in the entire MCU as like one of the most heartfelt human, beautiful moments is just a testament to how good these movies are. And, Yandu is a character, I like how he's an alien, but like he's played with kind of like this like good old boy sort of like. Yeah, southern charm. charm. Yeah. Like just that line, uh, that line,
0: <laughs> he might have been your father boy, but it wasn't your daddy. It's just, it's so good. He really does have that sort of southern boy charm, like just a good old boy. <laughs> like, he's, got, he's got those crooked ass teeth too, like just the total roguish type. And when the the whole Mary Poppins y'all thing, oh god, I like, love that joke. <laughs> just
1: you look like Mary Poppins. Was she cool? Know who the fuck that is? Yeah, he's like, was she like, cool? Was he cool? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm Mary Poppins y'all. <laughs> just <laughs> oh. the way he screams, "I'm Mary Poppins y'all," was such confidence. So good. Like, fuck yeah, I'm Mary Poppins. Yeah, <laughs> I'm
0: connecting with my
1: boy here. I'm Mary Poppins. <laughs> Volume
0: two is fantastic.
1: Just thinking about. The uh, father and son, the Cat Stevens song that plays over the end of uh, Volume Two during Yondu's funeral.
0: Yeah, <laughs> probably my favorite needle drop in the in the in the trilogy. God, it's such a good use of music. Like they all are, but Volume Two I feel like hits it the hardest.
1: There are so many um things that pay off and connect and stuff like there's there's so much stuff I know I'm forgetting but it's just the nature of talking about stuff you dude, love dude we've
0: been going for two hours on this one like, I know there's so I much know. that we could and we still got a whole we got a whole third ass movie and some spin-off stuff we need to hit the spin-off stuff kind of quick as quick as we can yeah. at least easy peasy um, so first <laughs> off the big one infinity war infinity war does a lot with the guardians I, I kind of just realized, uh, good God, Tyler, Jesus. Excuse me. God. Anyway, uh, it was a beer burp. <laughs> Yay. Um, <laughs> in <infin-> fifth. <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> fucking guy. You, do just you know how many yeah. burps there are throughout Tugging Tuck- Like, I constantly <laughs> hack and wheeze, and you're just burping throughout all of Tugging yeah, Geek. We're, 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 we're quite disgusting. We're disgusting, disgusting <laughs> gross monsters. I don't know why anyone would listen to this podcast. <laughs> we're getting more views lately, though, so that's good. Oh, God. And it's always when I'm trying to make a point that you burp so I can't cut it out. <laughs> it's, like, perfectly timed <laughs> to be in there. Ugh. Anywho. And you say I'm not a good comedic partner. Mm-hmm. Anywho Infinity War. I kind of had this realization recently Thanos is more of a villain to the Guardians directly than he is to the Avengers. Like he set up throughout all of these films to be this big looming threat that's on its way but it's specifically the Guardians that make him the biggest one because of his connection to Gamora and Nebula but also he's been discussed as like this galactic level threat, universal level threat to all life in those Movies in particular, whereas the Avengers really don't know anything about him until he shows up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why Endgame annoys me with some of the payoff it lacks, um, but we won't get into that. But as for what they do with the Guardians, um, I think they're mostly handled well. Um, of course, this is. You could be argued like this is Thanos's. Well, it is Thanos's. Yeah, movie. I mean, Infinity War most, absolutely is. He has the most screen time of anybody, so it's his movie. It's also Gamora's movie. Mm-hmm. More than Tony's, more than Steve's, it's it's actually Gamora's movie, which is really... Needed. Needed at this point. Need, it's needed and applauded, even though I'm not the, oh God, I'm not the biggest fan of either Infinity War and Endgame. Kill me now, MCU fans, comic book <laughs> fans. I think they kind of did a disservice to Star-Lord. But they did really right by Gamora, Rocket, and Nebula in these in these two movies.
0: How so with Star-Lord? Is it his whole, he accidentally <sighs> killed all of the life on the universe that everybody complains about?
1: Yeah, I'm kind of one of those people that doesn't like it because even though it's technically in character. It's
0: absolutely in character. Tyler. I kind of feel like he should be beyond that at this point. No, Tyler. At... Okay, let's have this argument because everybody points (laughs) out the fact that Star-Lord screws everything up. They had the Infinity Gauntlet almost off. And then Thanos reveals that he killed Gamora to get the Reality Stone. And Star-Lord goes off, starts beating on Thanos. And it's just enough to let Thanos snap out of Mantis's control and regain control of the fight. And he ends up winning. This was absolutely the wrong choice to make from a strategic standpoint. Well, yeah, I know that. He is not, like, for a character motivation, what Star-Lord has been going through his entire time in all of these films is reconnecting to people on a deeper level than just this sort of superfluous, casual thing that he's been doing as a sort of his own interpretation of an action hero. His relationship with Gamora is the first mature, reasonable relationship he's had with a woman. The first person he's truly loved and he's lost that. And every time we've seen Star-Lord lose someone or someone threaten the people he loves, he goes apeshit. Just like he did on Ego in the last movie when he finds out that Ego killed his mother, the first thing he does is pull out his guns and start fucking blasting. You cannot expect in a character who is driven by his emotional connection to others and his need for love and family, when he loses the most important person in his life, you can't expect him to act rationally of course he's gonna fucking lose it he's done that every other time and he's not grown to the point of not caring about people or being more rational he's gained emotional growth yeah that's that's fair um
1: i mean i i don't like absolutely hate it i just kind of wish they found a way around it is all i just i I don't think the whole like dick measuring contest with Thor is funny. That's actually my bigger contention than him beating Thanos over the head. That's as fair. As they're getting the gauntlet off. That's fair. That is more annoying to me than than him beating up Thanos. And this this is my this is my pettiness coming out. I I hate that good character work was done outside of the trilogy. (laughs) 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 The trilogy can't stand alone completely all by its own. It needs that context. The
0: third one is more reliant on knowing A, Infinity War and Endgame and also B, that little bit in the holiday special with Mantis. Um, Mm -hmm. It's more of a dependent film than the other two. The first one was foundational and you didn't really need to know going in the rest of the MCU yet. Although it was following that same formula, it wasn't necessarily... You you didn't have to know what was going on on Earth with the Avengers or whatnot to enjoy it. The second one was absolutely its own standalone story. That was like, we're not even going to touch Thanos and whatnot. We're going to focus completely on this new arc. The third one... Becomes dependent on understanding what happened with Infinity. Like everything else that happens post in game, it relies on you understanding end game.
1: Yeah. The third one can mostly stand on its own, unfortunately, except for the Quill Gamora dynamic. Which
0: is um, like the secondary plot point in this, <laughs> aside from Rocket. It's like the second yeah. main through line. And
1: I just want to say I am vindicated. And that James Gunn said he personally, if he had his choice, he wouldn't have killed off Gamora. Mm. He gave that he gave them their blessing, but he wouldn't have done it. But I won't be petty and annoying about that too much. Anyway, so because of all the machinations that's happening with Thanos, he's finally here. Everything, everybody's coming together for the big team up and same movie, you know, the lead up to Infinity War, the biggest crossover, event, blah, blah, blah. We, they now know that Thanos has the stones and Gamora is scared shitless. Mm -hmm. They plan on going to meet him to hopefully kill him because she finally confesses her love for Peter and they're finally at that level with each other. She says, if this doesn't go the way we want it to, I want you to kill me. I want you to not hesitate and I want you to kill me. And like, that's not like said in, like, some, like, cool badass, like, warrior, like, do it for the mission way. Mm -mm. That's her being as vulnerable as she possibly can be.
0: Because she is terrified like, out of love. She is terrified <laughs> it's out of that love for Peter. Mm-hmm. She's pretty much. She's terrified on multiple levels. She's terrified <laughs> a that she's going to be the one responsible for Thanos taking over the galaxy and getting what he wants, or the universe and getting what he wants. B. She's terrified of being back under Thanos's control again. She's back to being that scared little girl who's fighting for her life. And C. She's terrified that like Peter's going to have to live with the pain of knowing that he was uh, responsible for her death, but she was willing to overlook that last one over the other two, which shows, like, she's still not perfect, despite all the growth that she's made. She's still willing to force Peter to put himself into that situation because of how much she's afraid of Thanos. Yeah, it's... It's
1: fucked Mm -hmm. because she loves and trusts Peter enough at this point to ask him to kill her (laughs) if Thanos gets his way. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Peter, you know, he was a pirate, you know, a bit of a mercenary. You know, he reluctantly, out of love for her and some understanding of the threat that they face agrees, they go to... Is it Nowhere? Yeah. Yeah. Where the Collector was? It's the was? Collector's
0: place in Nowhere, yeah. yeah.
1: They go to Nowhere to confront Thanos. The Quill's like, don't pop off, guys. Stay behind. We don't know what we're running into. Drax seizes opportunity, attacks, but, you know, Thanos, he's got the stones and one of them manipulates reality. Turns, like, Drax into cubes or whatever, mantis into ribbons. Yeah. Yeah. Can't do anything. And what a bastard. He fakes out letting Gamora think that he stabbed him and ended his life. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing was a fucking projection. Yep. Was fake. And turns Peter's reluctant bullets into bubbles as he goes to. Yeah, Peter does it. Peter goes through with it. Yeah. He goes through with it. He was going to kill her which uh <laughs> ouch
0: and Thanos <laughs> yeah. it's been a while since I've watched Infinity War but once he does that doesn't he say I like you before he takes Gamora because like I, of think, how I far think something he was, like that yeah because of how far Peter was willing to go like he's like I like you and then he takes Gamora and it's such a spit in the face
1: yeah and
0: every scene
1: with Gamora sort of confronting Thanos about what a fucking
0: monster piece of shit he is. Because you also it's, it also ties together her relationship with Nebula too. Nebula. Because mm. Nebula has been caught by Thanos again and he's literally got her disassembled, hovering in midair, her entire body piece by piece stretched out. And she's just screaming in agony as Thanos is tormenting her. Gamora is finally like, okay, fine. I finally care about somebody enough that I will tell you where the last stone is. It's some of Zoe Saldana
1: as the character's best work mm-hmm. because she's not afraid. Well, I mean, she's afraid, but like once he has her, like she's not going to hold back. Mm-hmm. So they're they're on Vormir, I think, is the planet where the, the Soul Stone is. Mm-hmm. And Ghostly Apparition Red Skull. Yeah. For some <laughs> reasons. <laughs> for
0: still unexplained like, reasons. <laughs> to attain the stone you must You
1: sacrifice something you love
0: Which I saw somebody bring this up The fact that Steve has to Steve Rogers has to be the one to go back in time And return all the stones to where they came from Like there must have been a very awkward reunion When he was giving back that one (laughs) The soul stone Oh uh hey man (laughs) Haven't seen you since
1: WWII (laughs) (laughs) Still a Nazi (laughs) Sucks to be you Gamora thinks that, ha, he finally lost. Thanos finally loses because he doesn't love anything. Mm -hmm. But, and this is kind of like a quote unquote problematic aspect of the movie for some people. Yeah. Because they don't think that Thanos' idea that or thought that he loves Gamora should actually translate into love. Mm -hmm. It's, it's what you read into it, you know, like... We don't. We don't know what the fucking soul stone perceives as love. Like, can it filter out what parental unabusive love is? Can it filter out plutonic love, romantic love? Maybe in Thanos's mind, like what he did to her, did translate as love. And it's so. It, it shows m- maybe his... the stone. Maybe the stone like extrapolates what the person seeking the stone truly feels is love not like a judgment of what good love versus bad love is it's also
0: important to note that Thanos is the mad titan he's insane his literal mission is, is to wipe out half of the universe so that the other half can thrive which is insane like very much so people people always mock thanos like his plan makes no sense yeah of course it fucking doesn't he's not nuts to. <laughs> the the what's so good about infinity war is showing the absolute lengths of his madness he's willing to go to to fulfill his insane mission and in his own insane way the way he tormented Gamora and Nebula, the way he destroyed their home worlds and stole them from their families. That is his mad form of love. It's not real love. It's not a genuine love and care for someone's needs, but it's his maddened view of love. Yeah. If if he he believes it's love,
1: so therefore the soul stone accepts it Mm -hmm. because he believes it. Well, Didn't say, but he throws her off the cliff. Yeah. She's dead. And that's pretty much the big developments.
0: For Um, for Infinity War. With Endgame. For Infinity War. Real briefly with Endgame. Gamora is brought back, not with the stones and not the real Gamora, but through time travel shenanigans. They they bring her, pre-her meeting the Guardians, like right before Mm -hmm. she would have met the Guardians. They bring that Gamora back from the past. And then after all of the events in the endgame, you know, beating Thanos and whatnot, that Gamora is still out there in the new timeline. So it's a Gamora who never met the Guardians, who never had any connection to them. She runs off and does her own thing because... She doesn't fucking know these people. She doesn't want anything to do with them.
1: But Peter, kind of like, kind of like Groot in you know Volume Two after Volume One, functionally a new character.
0: Mm-hmm. And of course, Peter's still obsessed with her because this was the love of his life. And oh my gosh, she's suddenly back, but she isn't really. And that's what the whole arc with them is in Volume Three: is this conflict of like, I'm not the person you knew. I'm to- someone totally different.
1: Rocket and Groot go to go with Thor for, for Thor to forge Stormbreaker because he lost Mjolnir in the movie we won't mention. That's some good stuff. I like that. Thor's probably at his best in Infinity War. I think. Yeah, we
0: don't need to talk um, about Thor though. Let's focus no. exclusively on well, Guardians. I was talking combat. about Rocket and Groot okay. a little
1: bit. <laughs> it's cool that the tech guy Rocket um, goes on like the. Tech. It's not really tech, but you know the magic weapon. forging, the forging quest, magic weapon with Thor, mm-hmm. and I like how Groot gets a little something to do by making the the handle on the on the hammer. That's cool. Yeah. Um, Nebula's around, but she's mostly getting tortured and left behind on Titan in Infinity War. Endgame's games more her movie. Legit. Like the opening moments with just her and Tony on the ship floating in space so intense.
0: are some of the best parts
1: yeah. of that three-hour movie. So and intense
0: like because they're both run- running out of oxygen, they're running out of food, they're just basically waiting to die in that spaceship, and their cute little interactions where they're just sort of so comfor- cute, they're just sort of comforting each other in what they think is their final moments after their immense failure is. It's so powerful. And
1: Endgame is when I really really fell in love with Nebula as a character Mm -hmm. Um, because at this point I hadn't really been swayed on volume two yet because I hadn't watched it since it came out. Mm -hmm. Just Karen Gillan's acting again through that makeup, the her and Tony just as a pairing. That's just that. This is what I'll give like the later Avengers movies and the MCU pre phase four is that the way they find a pair off characters is often very fun mm-hmm. and very cool. They're just, they're playing, you know, little paper football and, like, as Tony's just uh, being Tony and trying to teach her, like, she just has, like, this intense look of trying to learn the rules Yeah, on her face. She's taking it so and seriously like, and just...
0: he's just being sort of snarky like Tony Stark do. He's just sort of snarkily explaining the game.
1: <laughs> it's, it's written all over her face, like, this is serious. I gotta learn these rules. And she's just, like, paying attention to, like, every move and mm-hmm. word he says and it's so cute and he offers her like some of the food she has and she rejects it and gives it back to him. She comes and he covers him up because he's dying because he's human. Yeah. And she's She's unfortunately mostly machine. Yeah. And that the whole opening, like, 15, 20 minutes of Endgame, I think, is actually the strongest part of the whole movie. Um, Captain Marvel comes and rescues them. I love the little moment that her and Rocket Nebula and Rocket share once they're back on Earth. Yeah. They just, like, sit there and hold hands and just kind of share silent trauma with each other. Yeah, we've lost everything again. They're Yeah, they're the only ones that weren't snapped out of the group. And, you know, they're both, they're both the experiments. Mm-hmm. They're both the ones that were tinkered with and ripped apart and put back together and that sort of like unspoken connection that they have is kind of like understated in like the later appearances of the characters but it's there and it's really good
0: I think and then is there really much more we need to hit on with
1: Endgame I feel like no only only that uh, later on Nebula kills her older self because she has developed into a empathetic and more caring person
0: that's it yeah yeah, that's that's pretty much wraps it up for endgame. The holiday special, I'm not going to hit on too much with that. It's very cute. It's very fun. A lot of great moments with Drax and Mantis in particular. But it's revealed yep. that Mantis is actually Peter's biological half sister. She's one of the children of Ego. She was spared for some reason, and yeah, it just it, it, probably because of her powers. Yeah, it just establishes more that you know there's more of this family connection between them. Enter, introduce the Cosmos. Yeah. Introduce Cosmo with the talking Russian space dog with telekinesis. <laughs> also, Groot's buff now. <laughs> He's grown out of his I love.
1: his. I love his design in, in the... Holiday Special in Volume 3. He's grown
0: 30. out of his awkward teen face from Infinity War. He's just jacked now. He's in his Chad face. Yeah. <laughs> He's young and hot and ready to mingle. Uh, and let's, let's I, know, get- I
1: know we want to move on to Volume 3, but um, I do want to say that I absolutely love the beginning where that That band's playing that Christmas song Uh And Groot's just in the back Like
0: I am Groot (laughs) Cheering because he's so into it Absolutely (laughs) loving it Yeah let's get into Volume 3 though Because good lord We're past the two hour mark We're almost to the two and a half hour mark Are are you feeling the fatigue? No I just This is going to be a long ass episode And I need us to get into Volume 3 Because holy shit There's so much to say about it Okay
1: Alright let's get into Volume 3
0: It's We Three in Space (laughs) It's we
1: three (laughs) in space. It's we we three in space, and (laughs) a lot happens. A lot goes on. I was an open fucking nerve Mm -hmm. the entire two and a half hours of this movie. So this one... Yeah. (laughs) This uh, one's the... Okay, I knew. I I knew this movie would cut me open. We all knew. I expected. We saw the trailer, and we're like, oh, God, here it comes. I did not expect to be misty-eyed from literally the opening seconds. Like... (laughs) I don't know if it's because, like, I'm just more vulnerable of a person now in my older age, but, like, I was
0: literally on the verge (laughs) of crying this whole movie and cried, like, four times. Uh, Okay, so this one, darkest about design. They wanted to really push the absolute maximum of how traumatized and pained these characters are, uh, specifically through Rocket. Big opening scene is they're all hanging out on Nowhere, their new home. They've established it as, like, the base of the Guardians of the Galaxy. It's basically like this little rogue planetoid that they have a whole bunch of people living on now. I guess refugees and exiles and stuff. And then suddenly, Adam Warlock, who was teased at the end of uh, Volume 2, shows up and tries to kidnap Rocket. They manage to fight him off but Rocket is severely injured and comatose and dying, and they find out that they can't just heal him with their usual space magic voodoo stuff they got uh, because he's <laughs> he's proprietary property of this big corporation, and they've got to get this specific thing that's basically latched to his heart. they got to unlock it before they can heal him. So the whole mission is just save Rocket. The whole movie, the big mission is save Rocket from dying. And throughout the whole thing, we're getting... Rocket's flashbacks to his past as he's laying there dying. He's thinking of what his origin story and everything. Before we get into the actual Rocket backstory, there's a real feeling of Rocket's absence in this film, for both better and worse, because it establishes immediately like he's not going to be doing his usual thing with the rest of the team. He's out. Like they're trying to save him. That's the mission. And you feel the weight of it in his absence. But at the same time, I found myself in a lot of scenes, just wishing rocket were here with his usual, like sort of take on everything, his snarky humor and everything. I, I, I kind of missed it because there were moments where I was like, Oh man, I really wanted to see rockets take on all this. Yeah. Uh, That's, I think that's the brilliance. It it, is. It's like you're
1: missing him the whole time. mm -hmm. And so is everybody else in the movie, even though like his flashbacks and stuff really don't take up that much screen time, screen time, Mm -hmm. but they're so impactful. And when we switch back and forth, they just make you like understand his absence even harder and make you cheer on their mission even stronger because without him, you know, they're not whole. Mm Mm-hmm. That's completely by design, and it's handled so well, I think. Because even though they're like they're a family and they've they've come together for each other finally, it's still their own personal demons that they're working through. You know, Rocket hasn't come to terms with what he is, what happened to him. Quill can't get over Gamora, so he drinks himself into a stupor. Nebula's still, you know, prickly. And, and, and rigid, and Drax just you know being himself is kind of getting on the nerves of of, of people. But when somebody comes and threatens their friend, their family, it's you know drop everything, mm-hmm. let's go get him. I
0: like how I, I, I like how solid the found family is at this point. It's despite the bickering going on, this is the movie where it feels like okay. In the first film, they were trying to figure each other out. They're starting to build this connection with each other. In the second film, it's very tense because we're trying to maintain something that's still on the rocks. In this one, the foundation's there. It's solid. It's strong. We're saving Rocket. He's a member of the family. We may bicker and argue over all of this, but damn it, we are all in this together.
1: Yeah, and and the whole team mission, it's such a smart move to make the stakes so personal. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and small like there's no like universe or galaxy threatening thing happening yet. It's it's the smallest scale story so far in the trilogy yet on the biggest canvas. Mm-hmm. This movie's huge. Just the amount of environments and action set pieces and makeup and creatures. It's the best made one of the three. It's the strongest directed. I think. And it's it's like it it made me feel that that magic again. Mm-hmm. Of what a good Marvel movie is. Yeah. And it it, it made me feel that, like, magic of what a really good just blockbuster can make you feel like in general. Just like when everything just looks good, sounds good, is executed well, and you're in it on every level.
0: It also, it uses... Because when we started reviewing some MCU stuff right after Endgame, like Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision, we were both on board for that stuff because of the interesting ways that Endgame, the events of Endgame and Infinity War were being used in the MCU. Now we're both basically tapped out again because we're like, okay, this is getting ridiculous. But this one in particular, it takes the massive scale events of Endgame and Infinity War and narrows it down to specifically how that impacts peter and his relationship with gamora. It, they're not mm-hmm. they're not fixated on, you know, helping the galaxy heal from ha- suddenly having lo- lost half of its population. They're focused on peter lost his gamora, there's a new gamora, but she's not her and peter has to come to accept that.
1: Yeah, there's there's so much just like empathy mm-hmm. in this movie. Just like like the second one, just a lot of it's just the characters like talking and like bearing their hearts out. And in a lesser movie, I keep saying that in a lesser movie, Peter's pining for Gamora can come off as creepy or maybe manipulative. Yeah. And you can tell he's trying to like
0: convince her like we used to be something. We used to have something. Well, we know it's unhealthy. By the end of the movie, he yeah. acknowledges like what he's doing, trying to make this new Gamora fit his mold of what he believes her to be is wrong. Mm-hmm. even even though it's unhealthy like it's it's
1: not it's sad it's not played it's sad and it's not played well it's kind of played for laughs and there's a couple of quips but they're they're well enjoyed. oh
0: my god oh my god <laughs> the scene where she's like "You sounds like you're more in love with her than me and give them more yeah. points at Nebula and they're both like oh no absolutely not and then Quill has that moment where he just looks at her you see, and he she's kind of like considering it and she's like stop it and he's like I'm sorry I just never noticed how black your eyes are <laughs> Such a good scene. We're
1: when they're when they're, when they're when they're on the surface of the flesh planet, uh-huh. and like he's bearing his heart out, and like, he doesn't realize they're on
0: open columns. Yeah. And then
1: there's just like I didn't. I thought it would stop. I didn't know when it would end. Yeah, <laughs>
0: please, please stop. This is unbearable. <laughs>
1: <gasps> um, and you you feel for the guy. You, like you truly feel for him because at this point he's pretty much not buffoonish Quill anymore. Mm-hmm. He um, picks up that kind of, like, roguish... That roguish charmer Peter again um, to achieve the goal because... But it's more of an act, fucking around. He's more of an act. Yeah. It's, yeah. And he's not fucking around. Nobody's fucking around because, you, you know, this fucking bastard's got rocket. Oh, yeah. we'll get to the high evolution. Now. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, again, like... The, these movies kind of make you, like, underestimate Quill and then, like, make you... Realize, oh shit, you know,
0: he's dangerous. You know, he's a badass. Yeah, he's clever and resourceful and really good at killing people. (laughs) I got chills of,
1: like, just like, I got a movie boner when they're on the fucking second Earth, yeah, counter Earth, and they're in, like, the office of the high evolutionary and they just get done blasting everybody because Groot's got all these guns hidden in his
0: roots. (laughs) (laughs) And he's got, like, spider arms and they fuck... Oh, it's so bad. Yeah, they really utilize Groot's body in this one with, like, all the ways he... He goes full Uh, kaiju at one point. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) (laughs) And to escape, they just
1: fucking tackle this asshole out of a window and ride him down into, like, a swamp. And Peter just knifes this fucking thing off of his head that they need. <laughs> yeah,
0: he's stone cold. He don't give a shit. I will say with and, Peter... Oh, shit, I lost my uh, headphones. Uh-oh. Pick him I'm back a up, mess. Pick them back tonight. up tonight. You. <laughs> you. gotten sloppy,
1: bitch. I've gotten... I've only had... I'm tired, like I said. Two <laughs> beers and being tired.
0: Uh, I will at, say... Uh, 33. I, I will say I think they maybe pull a few too many strings with Peter in this one. Because his main one is his relationship with Gamora obviously also his desire to save Rocket. But they try and sort of shoehorn in this bit with him reconnecting with his biological grandfather back on Earth that really just didn't feel necessary. And it's kind of where his story resolves is that he goes back to Earth to live with his granddad. And it kind of feels weirdly out of place here because these movies so much have been about found family and family isn't a matter of blood it's a matter of who you connect with and who's there for you when you need it I guess you could make the argument that like Quill needs to be there for his grandfather who was left all alone after his mother died but we spend so much time building up this found family and then by the end they depart and some of them have good reasons for it but Quill's just feels a bit extraneous I have to utterly disagree really yeah I don't think it would
1: be a lesser movie if that part was not in it, but I do think that that part being in it is a testament to how hard Gunn thought about wrapping all this up because it is kind of a dangling thread mm-hmm. because the very opening of the first movie, you know, he gets kidnapped, his mother dies, his grandfather's there, he loses his daughter and his grandson in, in the same night. Mm-hmm. In, in a story about people finally overcoming everything bad and terrible and traumatic that has defined them, um, building bridges again and coming to terms with everything and, and going back to where that trauma stemmed, I think it was really, really smart of, of Gunn to remember that and to incorporate that into his arc.
0: I can see that. Um, I think if the I mean, grandfather was more of a prevalent figure throughout the films or if the relationship yeah, between yeah. Quill and his grandfather was more important, I would have been more invested in it, but it kind of felt just sort of like, okay, his granddad who was in the film for like five minutes in the first one, is now where we're resolving his story arc. Like, him going back to the place where his trauma started, I'm all on board with that. But, I don't know. I, I can see the elements there. They just didn't quite work for me. Eh,
1: fair enough. Maybe uh, another watch will make it gel. Maybe.
0: I've it. only watched this one once. Like,
1: the second one, I, I honestly think that, you know, once a, another viewing is, is down, like, it, it all clicks more. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is a lot going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. God, where to go from... Where to go from let's here? Let's
0: step away from Quill for a minute. Let's get into the meat. Let's do All right. Let's do Rocket. The raccoon meat. <laughs> the raccoon meat. That tender, uh, supple raccoon meat that keeps getting torn apart and stitched back together.
1: Jesus Christ. Um, another amazing opening credit scene where we're following Rocket through nowhere. As he's listening to Peter's Zune. Because he has a Zune now. Because Yandu gave it to him in Volume 2. And it's got 300 songs on Woohoo! it. <laughs> 300. Mm-hmm. And they're not just... Rock and pop songs from the 70s anymore It's a mix of everything So the soundtrack in this one is more eclectic Yeah um, And he's singing the he's singing along to the acoustic version of Radiohead's Creep And the track listing for the soundtrack was released before the movie And I couldn't help myself and looked at it And I'm not going to lie The music snob in me kind of bristled at first <laughs> Because I like Creep by Radiohead But it's such a well-known song And pretty much memed to death at this point mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's kind of an obvious pick. Oh, the, the other soundtracks were more deep cuts. That's kind of, mm, but goddamn, if it didn't work, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the, the fact that out of three hundred songs on that Zune, that's the one that Rocket zeroes in on and like connects with. Yeah, you could say it's obvious, but who cares if it works so well? Is it just, <laughs> you know? is
0: it just me, or is that opening scene? Do we also get a little bit of hint of Rocket's age too? Cause like He does look kind of worn down. He, he, a he moves a little bit slower as he's walking through. And you can read it as just like, oh, he's, you know, sort of relaxed where he is right now. This is his new home. He's He feels comfortable here. But there, I kind of felt there was this sense of, and maybe it was me knowing how deep into his backstory we were going to get. Like, he's moving a little bit slower. He's a little bit more tired. He's not the, like, young, aggressive raccoon that he was. He's get, he's getting up there for a raccoon. <laughs> you know, I don't know what the <laughs> yep. cybernetics did to him in terms of extending his life, life cycle, but um, he's getting pretty old there.
1: Yeah, and again, the, the effects on him are on point. Absolutely. Um, He looks more lifelike than he ever has, which is saying something because he's always been a great visual effect in these movies. When the high evolutionary, not the high evolutionary, when Adam Warlock comes and fucks everybody up, he's hurting. You know, he's foaming at the mouth. He's like knocking on death's door like, I'm, like, gripping my goddamn seat yeah. in the theater yeah. <laughs> because it's so, distra- it's so distressing. I, uh, because I think I, I took a lot of my, like, baggage with the MCU as a whole into this movie. Uh-huh. And I'm, like, if, th- if this one doesn't grab me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rage. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> but not- and, like, so I have all this, like, built-up affection for these characters. Mm-hmm. And, like, this movie would have come out earlier if James Gunn wasn't fired for a non So, like, it had all this stuff stacked against it. So, like, I had all this going into it, and then, like, it just comes out swinging, and I'm just, my, my heart's out there pan, pounding the whole time. Like, every other installment
0: and in this trilogy, it just hits you out the gate. It's like, here we go. We're in it now. <laughs> you know, let's go save our friend. Let's go get our friend. And
1: Peter's complete unwillingness to lose a rocket
0: Oh, um, the whole teams. It's never a question yeah, it's, yeah. at any it's, point. Yeah. yeah. Like all of them are a thousand percent on board of like, we will kill anybody in anybody. our way. Literally Drax is saying that at one point. It's like, we're gonna go to this place. We're gonna kill everyone. And Peter's like, no, we're not. We're not killing anybody. He's like, we're killing uh, like some of them. And he's like, we're not killing anybody. He's like, one stupid guy. One worthless guy. One sad piece of shit. And Peter's like, you're just making it sad now, man. <laughs> like they uh- And then, well, you know, Peter, he ends up going back on that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... I- Okay, we won't get to that point yet. It's way towards the end. We'll save it for then. But yeah, immediately at the gate, the stakes are set of Rockets dying. Gotta save him. And while the rest of them are going on that, we're getting Rockets flashbacks. And we all knew it was rough. We all knew it was bad.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Erica was basically comatose by the end of this movie. I can Um. believe it.
0: As much as she loves
1: animals. Holy shit. Uh, trigger warning this does this movie is mostly about animal abuse yep. <laughs>
0: um, so Rocket uh, Rocket turns out to be the product of a being known as the high evolutionary whose whole mission is to create the perfect species and with it the perfect society and in order to do this he has built and destroyed entire civilizations over and over and over again uh, just just Killing his experiments with absolutely no care or regard for their lives. He's an absolute bastard of a villain and a perfect presence for that.
1: I I meant to look up the actor's name before I sat down because I wanted to give him accolades. He freaking kills it because
0: it is. Oh my gosh, I cannot pronounce that name. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm, gonna- I'm pretty sure I can I can do it
1: well. Um, yeah, try on my phone's being so
0: yeah, that's
1: <laughs> Do, 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 do. We got Chuck Woody Iwuji as the high evolutionary. And he's not just like, he is kind of one-dimensional, but he's not one-dimensional in that, you know, kind of mustache twirling way. Not, he's... He's not Ronan. He's <laughs> he's disgustingly despicable. Mm-hmm. He's the... He... he plays that like childish petulance in a way that's like not like that doesn't take away from his menace it actually adds to it because he's ego driven kind of like ego and then like it's it's only him and his vision and what he wants that he sees that's the only thing that has value
0: yeah and
1: just the callousness in the way he goes about everything he does just makes you absolutely hate him (laughs) like the way he like will lose his temper and like yell at his underlings and stuff and like stamp his feet and just it's you want to fucking throttle this guy
0: he's a genius with the like the temperament of a child (laughs) and he's an absolute monster because of it you don't credit to the movie you don't
1: explicitly see anything he does to these animals but the visuals of the aftermath and their environment are enough yeah. to really sell it. Because the first image is this, this like ominous giant hand reaching into a cage of baby raccoons. And the one that it's going for, you know, is obviously Rocket because it transitions to his older face. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's more child abuse. Like, yeah. Peter was abused as a child. Gamora and Nebula were abused as a child. Rocket was abused as a child, mm-hmm. and he has cellmates when he's not being experimented on, who are two of them are characters from the comics. Uh, one of them I think is just for the movie. We got Toofs, who is a walrus, who is named Walrus in the comics. <laughs> <laughs> we have Lila, who is a cute little sweet otter, who is his love interest in the comics. Then we got Floor, who is the most visually distressing to look at because she's just yeah. this cute little white rabbit
0: on spider this, this... on robotic spider legs, like something out of Toy Story, except there's blood, like and this, just
1: just this mouth gear,
0: and like, it literally looks like that spidery thing from Toy Story. You know the first one with Story's Sid with like the baby doll head on a spider body, like it's that. Except it's a rabbit, and it's bloody, and it's horrifying. It's so sad and gross.
1: Rocket's first meeting with them. He's thrown in his cage. They're, they're talking to him, trying to introduce themselves and get to know him. The first word out of his mouth is hurts.
0: Yeah. Ah! Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Every moment mouth, in the flashbacks just pain because you know these characters are all gonna die. <laughs> these these characters,
1: I, I was holding out hope though because there's a shot in the trailer where Lila and Rocket are hugging. I'm like, oh, maybe that's them like meeting up in the future in the current time. Nope. No, no,
0: it's not. Um. <laughs> Let's fast forward. Lots of traumatic stuff happens. Rocket shows like the high evolutionary how to fix his next stage of evolution. The high evolutionary was trying to basically like rapidly evolve animals into humanoids and rocket fixes it for him, showing that he's not just intelligent, he's creative, which none of the high evolutionary's creations have ever shown like creativity, uh, which is why the high evolutionary wants him now. He's like the one thing he ever made that shows that spark of creativity And the High Evolutionary basically says, all right, now that we've fixed the problem, let's, you know, throw these all away. And Rocket stands up for his friends. He does his first invention, which is a key to unlock their cages. The first thing he ever invents is a key. And he frees his friends. But the High Evolutionary shows up and they all get killed in one of the saddest ways possible because High Evolutionary kills Lala. That's totally on the High Evolutionary for being a bastard. You know, Rocket loses his mind over this, attacks the High Evolutionary. He could have escaped after that, but because of his rage and pain over Lila's Lost, he sticks around while the other two are freaking out. Uh, He sticks around and tries to kill all of the other assistants of the High Evolutionary as they're coming to rescue their boss. And as he's killing them, the other two animals get killed as well. So, add on top of the fact all this trauma, Rocket also blames himself for the death of his other two friends.
1: Yeah, um... <sighs> just, Ooh. god, it's what was
0: Floor screaming, I, by the
1: way? Yeah, I was Lala does. To ask you because <laughs> like, I'm pretty I sure like, it's- I couldn't see the screen at this point
0: because of my eyes, and I was just kind of like half gone. Lala's, <laughs> Lala's there dead, and the walrus is freaked out, like backed into a corner, and the little rabbit is like hopping around screaming something. I think it's like, rocket it, run, gotta run, rocket run. She's just saying it over and over in this traumatized robotic voice, and it's- It's so
1: distressing. Oh! Uh, I don't, was, I don't know what she was saying, but her, the repetitive way she kept saying it, and the and 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 the the pitch of her voice, mm-hmm. and how scared she sounded, was just like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and rockets just like pained scream, mm-hmm. just uh, and all of this, like these aren't very long scenes, no. which I think are obviously for the best, and. When you go back and watch the other movies, like, everything... It all clicks into just place. Has, it just has so much more weight and emotion.
0: Uh, knowing because- that Rocket was traumatized by being an experiment is one thing. Knowing that he had a collection of friends who he tried to save and failed, and he blames himself for that, explains all of his actions in every scene he's in throughout these movies. Because you can see himself pushing people away trying not to get involved trying to stay alone because he's terrified he's going to fuck up again and
1: there there's been an ongoing thing with the character throughout the entire mcu where he hates being called a raccoon because mm-hmm. he, he doesn't know he's a raccoon and at first you might think it's just kind of a funny quirk like he just ha, he doesn't know he's a raccoon he hates it but later on as it keeps going you're like oh it's it's, it's tied to whatever the fuck happened to him, yeah. you know, because he sees himself as this freak of nature. He doesn't like other people seeing him that way. And it's just, it's a, it's a point of pain for him to be called a raccoon because being called a raccoon just kind of reminds him of his past. He's not he, like everyone else. He's not like everyone else. And then during the finale, Oh during the finale rockets free they saved his life thank god
0: <laughs> yeah and he goes back to the lab they're trying to get everybody off sees... of like the high evolutionary ship as it's exploding and he mm-hmm. comes across the lab and there's a cage of baby raccoons still
1: <sighs> and he just goes over there and just starts scooping them all up because he's not gonna let anybody like him or anybody in general suffer what he had to suffer Mm -hmm. ever again. And it's so fucking beautiful. Here I go. (laughs) (laughs) And he, he sees that he was a raccoon. (laughs) He he finally gets confirmation that he was a raccoon. And he accepts it. it, it. and he accepts it. and in his triumphant moment of self-actualization. Like, I'm Rocket Raccoon. He finally says his full name. Uh,
0: That's so good. God damn it. It's so, it's so fucking beautiful. Let's- Best character in the MCU. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, um, since we're already here, I mean, I'm sure we're gonna jump back to some other stuff. Let's talk about his final confrontation with the High Evolutionary. Yeah. Because um, the rest of the Guardians Very sho- interesting point. High Evolutionary shows up He starts shooting at Rocket while he's got all these baby raccoons on him. Uh, The rest of the Guardians show up and help Rocket take him down and Rocket has him down on the ground. We get the reveal that the High Evolutionary's face was so torn up that he basically had to put a fake flesh mask over it after Rocket... Brutal! uh, It's all bloody and gross just all muscle and ugh, it's so mangled. But we see him lying there and Rocket decides not to kill him. And I don't know why they did this. Okay, I was that that
1: I was going to ask you uh, how you felt about them pulling that that trope that I'm not going to kill the villain
0: trope. I don't um, get it because the the Guardians of the Galaxy kill so many people on a regular basis. Why let this monster? I mean, granted, he probably died in the exploding spaceship anyway. But. I, I, I guess at I, best, I would say that it's Rocket deciding to end the cycle of violence, but uh, I don't know.
1: The the trope of, I'm not going to kill you, villain, because I'm better than you. I like it sometimes. I dislike it other times. I can see not liking the decision here because we hate the high evolutionary so much and we want to see him get his comeuppance so badly, but... With Rocket's journey, it, it's not worth it to him anymore because he's finally accepted what he is, who he is, and his family. It's not that driving point with him anymore. The High Evolutionary's been beaten down. He's been defeated. He's going down to the ship. Rocket's not, not going to waste the time and energy to prove to the High Evolutionary that Rocket cares enough to pull the trigger anymore. Is, is is how I took it. I had to think about it for a second, too.
0: Um, I guess... On the ride home. I guess... I don't know. It's one of those things that just didn't sit right and maybe on repeated viewings it will, but... If it was a different kind of character, I could feel it. But Rocket and the Guardians in general have always been so violently aggressive. These movies aren't about them becoming less violent. These movies are about them coping with their trauma and connecting with others and for this movie to end with this weird pseudo non-violent message it just I, if it's supposed to be rocket is past the highway evolutionary it's not worth his time anymore i would still argue that he knows that the high evolutionary is a monster that needs to die He doesn't want that to ever happen. Even if he's gotten past his trauma, he should still know that, like, no one else should have to suffer as he has. So, I don't know. It's just a weird ending for that. For it to be like, hey, you've gone through all this, and the monster who did this to you gets sort of spared, but not really, because he's going to go down with the ship.
1: Yeah, I, I guess... I can see your point of view. Um, at, at this point, I think it's just agree to disagree. Yeah. For the moment, there are so many things to talk about, but I feel like for the sake of your editing later, let's
0: probably let's hit Drax. Let's hit Drax. Yeah, let's hit Drax um, because we didn't talk about him yet. Drax is still his sort of goofy self. He still got a lot of great moments with Mantis. Love their dynamic. He's got some fun with Nebula who just does not get him. Nebula like <laughs> I fucking love Nebula. Nebula is doing her best to sort of coexist with the rest of the team and sort of become intermingled with the rest. Like if Gamora was kind of a stick in the mud in the earlier movies, Nebula is an absolute stick in the mud. <laughs> and like um She's trying to get connected with, and you see her sort sort of do it with the others, but she cannot stand Drax. She thinks he's an incompetent buffoon who's constantly endangering the mission and everything that they're trying to do. I think Mantis makes a fantastic point when they're having their argument when they first get on the high evolutionary ship. Drax's Mm -hmm. value to the team is not as a competent Warrior. He's a good fighter. He's strong, but he constantly makes bad strategic decisions. That's not his value to the team, though. His value to the team is that he's the only person who doesn't actively hate himself. Like... (laughs) Drax is the one person who, on the Guardians, who has a good sense of who he is and what makes him happy, and that brings the others joy. And as simple Mm -hmm. as that idea is, it conveys both, A, Drax's importance as a character, and B... Mantis's emotional intelligence and what she brings to the team. Because Mantis yes. also comes off as a bit of a goofball, just, you know, dicking around with Drax, but she's incredibly emotional and intelligent. She's an empath. She can literally read emotions and she helps people work through their emotional trauma through it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, couldn't have said it better. Um, great use of both characters. Um, I-, I love how Mantis is just kind of this person that's able to put the team in their place when they need it and mm-hmm. make them understand where everyone's coming from. Uh, I just love the way she she says to Nebula, like he loves us and he makes us laugh. You know, that's that's why he's here. You know, that's why he's part of the
0: team. Because they're a family. Um, they're not just a team. Mm-hmm. They're a family. And <laughs> I I love <laughs> when like she like admits
1: that she thinks he's an idiot and then she
0: raises his, his yeah. memory from that. He's memory. like, you think I'm because, stupid? Like,
1: they think they're gonna die and she doesn't want him to have that memory. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: she's just, forget! <laughs> she, he's like, you think I'm stupid? And she's like, yes, forget. And he's like, ha! You all are so lucky I saved you. <laughs> um, And just and it, the, prickly Nebula just gives me life in this movie. The, um, Before we jump into Nebula, I want to yeah. wrap up Drax. His ending there contextualizes his shift because in volume two, you could make the argument he's making the shift into comedic relief. But in volume three, it contextualizes that shift as he's a dad. Because we see this group of children that have been kidnapped by the High Evolutionary. They're like the next stage of his evolution that he wants to make. And Drax is the one that manages to calm them down, to communicate with them, to get them to help with the mission in a way that keeps them all safe. And it's that paternal instinct he has that is what makes him the way he is. And at the very end, Mantis is like, you're not a destroyer, Drax. You're a dad that line hit me so hard in the ending where i'm like oh god oh god it's,
1: it's it's beautiful it's beautiful because he's he's a big goofball and he's good with kids and he likes kids mm-hmm. and it's it's the perfect the perfect ending for the character the the whole finale aside from like rocket rocket getting rescued and rocket rescuing the, the baby raccoons mm-hmm. you know they're about to leave but they're like there's still a bunch of kids in there. You know, we can't leave them. And Rocket's like, well, I'm done running. And and they don't even have to fucking talk about it because they're fucking badasses. They're all just like, all right, let's get this shit done. Second best needle drop of the entire series. No sleep till Brooklyn, uh, Beastie Boys. Best action scene of the series when they just...
0: Yeah, that hallway. Lay just <laughs> <with> the <goons laughs> in the hallway in that
1: one shot just... Mm-hmm. So bad. One
0: it's sweeping like, oh. shot between each of them just tearing people apart in that hall. It's so good. I
1: I love how, despite everything going on, it doesn't end up just being about them rescuing Rocket. Mm-hmm. They're still heroes in their own right. Yeah. They're going to save the kids. And and, and the animals. Mantis, <laughs> and, and the animals. And Mantis saving those big, aliens. From the
0: second one, yeah. From the start yeah. of the second.
1: Fucking... <laughs> 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 love it when you just hear, like, Nebula off-screen, like, why are you so slow? And, like, you see her just running with, like, a bunch of kids, and she's got one in piggyback. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love grouchy Nebula being group mom. <laughs> like, reluctant group mom. <laughs> so hilarious.
1: Like, Karen Gillen deserves so much, so much props mm-hmm. for this character. Like, I don't think she gets enough praise as a performer. Because she, she
0: also... Like, despite her grouchiness, she's reached the point where she's definitely, like, a grouchy member of the family. She does so much to take care of the others. She's the one who carries Quill back to, like, Mm -hmm. bed whenever he's drunk. She, like, picks him up and, like, cradles him and carries him uh, all the way to bed from the bar. And she also seems to be the one that does the most to make sure that the mission goes right. Like, she's the one who contacts Gamora and the Ravagers for their help. She's the one who's sort of directing everybody um, when Quill's not in the field. She's doing her best to make sure that Rocket gets saved and not just kind of reluctantly going along with it as you expect her to. Mm-hmm. I fucking. God damn it. I love the f Another bomb. I love the f the bomb F-bomb. drop. <laughs> so good. So it's,
1: a, it's unceremonious first f bomb of the MCU. <laughs> she
0: can't open a car door. St-
1: just a standard American car door. He's
0: like, you know, you gotta push in the thing. He's like, get in the fucking car. It's like it's so out of nowhere that that's where they drop their f bomb like, Okay, cool. And she's just
1: she's got that just like confused deer in the headlights look mm-hmm. she gets.
0: Oh, uh, <laughs> get in the fucking car.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, god man, drax fucking uh lining that guy off the bike yeah um, still in his motorcycle oh, we didn't even talk about furry world oh counter earth i love the fact that the high evolutionary considers himself god he says god like god doesn't exist so i stepped in mm-hmm. he he thinks so highly of himself but this perfect society, all he can do was just recreate like Earth in like the 80s, but with animal people,
0: but with furries. He made Furry World. His idea—you've spent how long trying to create the perfect society and the perfect species, and the best you can get is 80s Furry World. That's all you've such got. A,
1: such a good visual rep- representation of his mediocrity, mm-hmm.
0: and also the mind. and also his deal with Rocket, because he's so mm-hmm. obsessed with Rocket over the fact that Rocket is not just smart; he's creative. He shows that spark of inspiration that no, none of his other creations have. And it's also something he doesn't have. The high evolutionary is not creative. He's just imitating the world around him.
1: Yeah. And, and his his frickin' faulty pride just can't handle the fact that one of his creations is smarter than him. Mm-hmm. So he's going to go through the ends of the earth to, to get it back, to get him back and, and kill him.
0: God, what a petty bitch. Yeah. He's a real he's a real bastard and I love it. Let's talk quickly about Adam Warlock. Okay. I will I
1: will say that at this point he's probably the weakest part for me. Yeah. He still fits in with the themes of the film which helps soften his kind of extraneous nature. I think Will Poulter as Adam Warlock is very fun. Good performance, yeah. But he's just a little bit too much in a movie that's already doing
0: mm-hmm. too much. This one, I think, might have the strongest emotional whiplash because it still has that sort of funny hijinks comedy in it. But the depths of the trauma that they're willing to go to in this one makes those feel a little more out of place than they have in the past. Because the others have been willing to go dark before, absolutely. But this one pushes the dark envelope so far that when you do get back to the hijinks like adam warlock finds this little pet furry thing and he's obsessed with it now you're kind of like weren't we just watching a bunch of animals get like torn apart and in cages and everything like is this the same movie like (laughs) it does get a little more jarring than it has in the past
1: that's funny because i was thinking this movie actually does the best of juggling the the humor and the drama again maybe a rewatch will make me side more with that or against it. I'm not sure yet. I like that Adam Morlock ties into the theme of, you know, of second chances and opening up the family, opening up the team more. And because, you know, like rocket, he's, he was just a baby, you know?
0: Yeah. He was literally born yesterday. That's the whole gag. And just
1: like being exposed to the guardians for just a, a little bit to see what they do for each other and sacrifice is enough to kind of turn them around the movie almost lost me when they were faking out Peter's death yeah I was about to say that felt
0: forced it
1: felt forced but fucking James Gunn brought it back I'm like why is he going back why is because they, they do the thing that they do in every movie um where somebody gets
0: frozen in space yeah um, Which you would really keeping, think that Peter, with all of his fancy space gear, he would keep that on him, considering how many times he's watched <laughs> somebody near die in space. <laughs> like, I'm not one who usually nitpicks too many plot holes, but that was like, Peter, how many of your loved ones have died or had near-death experiences in space? You really didn't have your shit ready?
1: James, he was actually asked about that. He he made it a point uh, for his, his helmet to get broken in two, but they... They just brought it back for the Avengers movies. Mm -hmm. So that was like another kind of like discontinuity there. They're finally escaping. The ship's going down. He drops his Zune. He runs back for it. I'm like, oh, come on, dude. What are you doing? And then he almost dies. Adam Morlock comes and saves him in the last minute. I'm like, that seems a little unnecessary. Uh, I I didn't hate it, but it just seemed kind of like a fake out for no reason. Yeah. But the fucking ending. Rocket is gifted the Zune from Peter the reason he went back is because he wanted to give it to rocket because rocket enjoyed it so much. And Peter knew he was going to leave the team. So he wanted to give something to rocket made it all worthwhile. <laughs> made,
0: <laughs> I think you brought st- it home. I think you still could have communicated that without a fake out death, especially when so many of us were expecting a death in this movie. Like so many people go went into this movie thinking, Oh, they're going to kill somebody. The way that these trailers are working, like they're going to kill one of the Guardians, maybe a few of them. And for us to get a fake out death like that, that really only serves as like make Adam Warlock a little more important to the plot than he is. I don't know. Well, see, that's the thing. I was I was thinking
1: about how every movie has the somebody dies in space moment. It's it's not like James Gunn like resting on like a trope because you know he can't think of anything. It's 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 it's, it's part of the whole themes of the trilogy. Like there, it's this band of misfits, these these losers, you know, that really shouldn't have come together, but they're always faced with these insurmountable odds, and they're they're shown their truest selves, their best parts. You know, in in service of saving another life, whether it's Peter saving Gamora from freezing in space in the first one, whether it's Yandu saving Quill by sacrificing himself in space, or Quill going to get the Zune for Rocket because they just spent how much how amount of time trying to save his life, and he wanted to give his friend uh, a farewell present. So like these these goofballs like being juxtaposed against like the vastness cold death of space and willing to face it for each other in, in like every movie. I, I really appreciate
0: Mm. this one. This one was just the weakest of those though. I feel like the other times they've used it throughout the trilogy. It's far more impactful. Can we talk about how absolutely heartwarming it is that uh, when rocket wakes up, there's no jokes or quips or anything. They just straight up hug him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. like i think Mm -hmm. he says something when he first sits up and then the rest of them just hug him there's no attempt at like subverting it with humor like there might have been in earlier installments it's straight up just a show of emotional vulnerability and care that they have reached that shows how far they've come they don't have to undermine each other and make everything a quip they can finally just treat each other with love and care
1: yeah Gorgeous. And when Nebula hears that he's alive over the radio, she just like breaks down in like relieved mm-hmm. tears. Oh, so good. And I like because uh, Gamora's there while they're trying to revive Rocket and it's not working. And she's because she's not there, Gamora. She's like, you know, it's too late. He's gone. Give up. And Quill's just like, I am not losing him. <laughs> he's like, Forceful, he's like, I'm not losing. Yeah, and like she just, she knows to like step back and let them have that moment when he's revived. Peter finally letting go of Gamora at the end, you know, because she gets in his face, you know, like what, what, what do you think I'm going to fix in you? Who do you think I am? Like, yeah, that can fix what's missing in you. They have their parting of the ways, and like, was it? I can't remember. Was it him or her who said, "I bet we were fun." It was her, right? It was Gamora, because that that makes the most sense. Yeah, I think it was her. It's another cute
0: line that works so well and just... And it, it, it's a perfect way for them to part ways because I was so worried going in that this was going to be like he finds a way to seduce her all over again. To again. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it does the perfect job of like, no, this isn't her. This isn't the woman he fell in love with. He has to move past the fact that she's gone. Like him holding on to Gamora, his old Gamora, is what's keeping him back. And it's the perfect tie together for Quill's arc because he has been a man child defined by his unwillingness to grow up and move on past his trauma. And this latest one, the latest trauma he's faced where he lost the love of his life this is the moment where he finally feels complete because he's been brought to his absolute lowest he's lost the person who basically dragged him up to his more mature level in the earlier films and now he finally gets that catharsis of like because of my relationship with her with my Gamora I'm finally mature enough to let her go Mm -hmm. and Drax and
1: Rocket dancing together on nowhere. Um, Drax, fin- <laughs> Drax finally decides that he likes dancing. Rocket just seems—he just seems at ease now. He seems at peace now. He's—he's he's looser. He's not cynical mm-hmm. anymore. I like that it's Nebula, Rocket, and Drax that stay together on nowhere.
0: Yeah, although because that
1: makes the most sense
0: to me. Now, although Nebula and Drax aren't really members of the team anymore. They—they're not. They say that they're going to be busy, you know, building a new home for all these kids that they basically suddenly adopted. So Rocket... Once a guardian, always a guardian. Yeah, I know that. But, like, (laughs) the the movie ends with a whole new team led by Rocket. And the fact that Rocket Mm. went from being the absolute loner into a leader role is perfect. Like, that's where he needed to be in his ending. I will say, stupid line... it's (laughs) Groot's like they were trying to recapture the emotional weight of we are Groot but Groot just says I love you guys at the very end and it's like you can just fucking talk now (laughs) oh my god Isaac I can't believe you missed the point that's not the point is we can
1: understand him now that's that's the point point. The the, movie, the movies make a case that as you get to know Groot and are endeared to him more, you understand him. Because at first, you know, only Rocket could. Now everybody can. And at the end, when he says, I love you guys, that's us, the audience, finally being able to understand him at the end of this journey. So, he didn't he didn't say, he didn't speak English. It's just we finally... Can hear what he's actually okay, saying. Okay, I like that head
0: of yours, Tyler.
1: It's not head <laughs> Isaac. You're the you're the English major who spent how many years like <laughs> Tyler under like sifting through like subtext
0: and and, and thematic bullshit. That's, that's <laughs> fine. I like what you're saying. I think that's cool and it's definitely made me recontextualize it. That's not the definitive thing that happened. There's nothing that's in, totally the definitive. There's thing not that anything in on. the movie that says that oh we we the audience now understand Groot. It's supported by two whole movies before and spin-off mm. appearances. Mm. Don't act. You, you
1: need the, You needed the exposition. You needed the hardcore exposition. Don't, don't, don't act
0: like this was a, a super obvious, easy slap in the face thing. This is something <laughs> that you it's came super up obvious, with. Easy. This is something that you uh, came with. Gonna with.
1: Say, I'm just going to say you're going to feel silly. You're going to feel silly when you understand that that's pretty much how everybody interprets
0: mm-hmm. it. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. Sure. Anyway. <laughs> Now that you've tried to insult my intelligence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you you did it earlier
1: to me, so it's on
0: what? Fa-
1: I can't remember it happened. <laughs> <hours ago>. uh, <laughs> it was a while you ago. You insulted okay.
0: my intelligence on what? I don't know. I'm too stupid to remember. <laughs> Oh, you're gonna! Oh, yeah! I'm not. You're not coming over anymore. Saturday, revoke my invitation. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I think this is. You can't hang out anymore. <laughs> I think this is officially the longest episode we've ever done. um Oh yeah, definitely. We, do you want to forego any of the
1: the extra shit we do at the end? Yeah, yeah. Good god. Wrap it
0: up with final thoughts. Wrap up with final thoughts. Um, oh, we didn't mention Cosmo's adorable. Cosmo's adorable. And they She bickers with Kraglin the whole time because he calls her a bad dog after she shows him up. <laughs> and like it's, it's cute. There's not much to say about it, but it's cute. Yeah. You know what the payoff is going to be
1: immediately, but yeah. you, it's still good. It's fun.
0: <laughs> final thoughts on the Guardians uh, trilogy. I have some final thoughts. Yeah. We
1: have made it known countless times on this podcast that we have been fans of the mcu yeah but are very very disenfranchised with it now i'm not gonna shit on it right now. i just wanted to like
0: end that. so i can look back on it fondly <laughs> no i just wanted I... to end so i can look <laughs> back on it fondly tyler let me get nostalgic i can't get nostalgic well, if it won't die
1: <laughs> that's what i'm saying i even though i've been very very disenfranchised with it for the past couple years i haven't seen half of what phase four is i I haven't seen Ant man yet never going to probably Mm -hmm. but there's still been a part of me that's been clinging to it a little bit but this movie guardians 3 was my chance to say goodbye Mm -hmm. to the mcu and i feel catharsis on two levels in that i find this movie to be a successful goodbye to the Mm -hmm. guardians and a successful goodbye for me to the MCU. Yeah. Now I'm, i Now I feel like I feel good. I feel done. Like I'm. I'm happy now. Yeah. I'm finally at peace with it now <laughs> because
0: for me, it is ended. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I I think the same thing. Actually, I've got no investment in any of the upcoming projects. I haven't even watched the new Black Panther, which I actually was looking forward to. And I. Ha- I- I I've been meaning to. I just can't muster the it's uh, the energy. It, to. it was nice to have an MCU project to care about again, and it's nice to have one that feels done. And I know mm. they're gonna. They freaking said in the end credits thing they're bringing yeah, back at Star-Lord least store lord. It's just store lord. Store lord. <laughs> the lord of stores. The Lord of stores. It's just it feels this feels like a good stepping off point i know there's going to be a million bajillion new things new projects they're going to milk this thing until literally nobody goes to see them anymore which apparently isn't stopping anytime soon um (laughs) but yeah i yeah i agree this is where i call it with the mcu we're done you did good kid you gotta stop. <laughs> like we had fun. Let me let me enjoy, look back on you and as a wonderful part of my life instead of something that's yes. never gonna leave me alone. Yes,
1: yes. This uh, we're not saying this in bitterness. Uh-huh. We're
0: saying this in in, in farewell. And, and specifically with the Guardians trilogy, these movies are such beautifully flawed films like each one has its problems in different ways but despite that the highs that they reach in storytelling they're the funniest most heartfelt some of the best action and visuals in the mcu this is like the fact that they are so separated from the rest of the mcu and they're still like the best things that the MCU does shows that you don't really need to have this overconnecting universe. You can just tell good stories with good characters.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. These, these characters wormed their way into my heart in 2014 in a way that I didn't expect. And I've grown very, very attached to them. They mean a lot. They mean a lot to me in ways that I didn't expect and in ways that most modern blockbusters haven't been able to manage. Mm-hmm. So, I'm just I'm just glad I have this this beautiful trilogy about these freaking goofballs.
0: Yeah. that I can in, enjoy now. <sighs> Tyler, let's rate the damn things and be done with them. Um it's Volume 1. What do you give Volume
1: 1? Volume 1. I give Volume 1. Oh god, I can't even think of anything clever. Volume one is my third favorite MCU movie. That's what I'm giving it.
0: Okay. okay. (laughs) I will give volume one four out of five jackasses standing in a circle. Nice. (laughs) I'm I'm glad you can muster the clever ratings. Mm -hmm.
1: Volume two. I will give volume two the could
0: possibly change soon ranking
1: of my favorite MCU movie.
0: Okay. I'll give it 90 out of 100 dead ravagers. In space, damn, yeah,
1: it's hardcore. <laughs> and vo- I, I hope that I hope the rating for the third one isn't something sad. Uh, um, <laughs> volume three, Tyler, what's your rating? I give volume three
0: the rating of my second favorite MCU. Movie. I give volume three three out of four sovereignetic animal experiments. Yeah, yeah, I figured you were going go <laughs> Oh God, well. I think that's gonna do it for us. If you like this episode, share it with your friends or give us a like or a comment. Thank you for listening and remember, don't throw your baby in the trash and don't do horrifying uh, after this one. Don't do horrifying <laughs> experiments on your poor raccoon baby. Cubs? Raccoons have cubs, right?
1: Yeah, sure, we'll go with that.
0: Okay. Good night, everybody, and goodbye, MCU.
1: Goodbye, MCU.